Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. This episode will contain TFOS 1094 to 1107. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 1094. Cute and Godly, written by Jimmy Agent 007. The Mola Silence Director had a problem. Rather, they had a problem that created another problem. The humans had invented FTL about a thousand years early, according to the predictive models. Due to the lack of scientific elements in their system, humans shouldn't have been able to do it at all. That was the first problem. This led to a sudden need to choose what species would provide a diplomat for first contact. Like most of the species in the galaxy, the Mona evolved into crabs. This was the second problem the first created. Humans would not react well to a chittering giant covered in shell, despite the psychopathic death wilders being the far more dangerous species. A covert survey team made the mistake of wildly misunderstanding the meaning behind Crab Festival at a maritime town and requiring psychological treatment for life once the recovery team managed to find them catatonic in the water. The only other warm-blooded species was itself a recent contact, but it entirely lacked any knowledge the humans would want to know about the galaxy. Though, as the director investigated more, they realized that it was only choice and hoped that the diplomat that they sent could study quickly. Poole was terrified. He volunteered for the diplomatic corps because his people were still learning to adjust to alien life and he wanted to help foster that understanding. Suddenly, he was considered the best choice because he had been the first to leave the star system who wasn't a politician. That made him an expert. He wanted to hate these superiors for doing this to him, but he could see how terrified they were. My children are too young, he had said. They can't leave my wife for me yet. Good, bring them. So that's what they replied. Bring them. Six younglings who were just learning to scamper. Bring them to meet the humans. They actually seemed excited at the idea instead of taking him off the assignment. His wife, Fala, wasn't a diplomat, though. He was relieved when she offered to cover the sciences in his stead, trying to find a bright spot. How was she to do that while wrangling six younglings? He didn't know. He shook as the ship stopped, looking between the door and his wife, who shook as much from her terror as the mobile mass of his children in her arms. It was a nightmare. The airlock had already cycled before they told him that it was an airlock. They disguised it so that he wouldn't run away until it was too late. He thought about the Mona, who signed off on the plan, who had been advising his government the whole time with regards to the humans. Trust me, this will work better than any other option. That was what they had said. Poole watched the doors open to reveal a dozen humans at the far side of the desk. Had they been closer, they would have towered over him. Their eyes widened as he entered and climbed the steps so that he could reach the desk. His training was gone the moment he realized he was supposed to greet them. Instead, it was a human who spoke first. Shrieked, in fact, if his cultural translator was working correctly. Oh, little baby space otters. One of the humans who had been standing behind the one sitting at the table rushed forward to stand at the desk. 
So stunned by the noise, Paul and Vala couldn't stop their excited younglings from jumping out of her arms and scampering across the table. The human crouched down and picked up one of the younglings and held him to her face. And her fur is so soft. She, according to the translator, giggled. Paul wanted to react, but was so perplexed by the way the humans gently paid attention to his young and the positive emotions the translator insisted the humans were showing that he simply got started on the first contact protocols. The meeting went smoothly, despite the fuss generated by the humans and the youngling pups. Even the soldier, a general with an old withered face marred by a long scar from one side of his chin to his nose, let his one hand gently fend off the attacking pup in front of him while he sternly discussing military matters. They were supposed to be psychopaths. That was what the farm said. Monsters. Nightmares. Who, um, didn't even mind when one of the pups tried to crawl under their uniform cap. They made no sense to Poole. Although entirely confused, Poole had to admit that his people had been the best choice to make first contact. His species being largely aquatic but still similar enough to the humans let their engines aid the humans in ocean living while the humans taught them how to build higher on land. Exchange programs started and humans showed up in all sorts of places. The nurseries were popular with young humans looking to have an adventure off-world and the whole reason the space otters started building on land was to protect their young from the dangers of the water. It was one of the few industries largely on land where humans were most comfortable. That being said, humans were surprisingly capable in the water, and as Poole dropped his pumps off, he saw the humans swimming in the pools not entirely without grace. Do their teeth not hurt? Poole asked the human, who was almost ignoring several attacks by the energetic pumps. I'm used to cat bites, sir. These little ones have a long way to go to bother me replied the young human, adolescent Ashley. Cats, a breed of predator, I think I read. Paul seemed confused. Some are big enough to hunt us, but most of the ones we live with are the ones who domesticated themselves to feed on the vermin that congregated around our early settlements. Eventually, we just couldn't live without them. They still hunt us, but it's more playful and rather unsuccessful. Ashley laughed, as Paul was as confused as always. Nothing the humans talked about made sense. Well, our young need to learn manners sometime. Ashley came out of the water in a wetsuit that mimicked the effect of his fur for the human and only stood a head taller than him. Don't we all? Bull had antagonized the service desk for his translator ever since making first contact, insisting that it wasn't working. He had to accept the fact that the humans were, in fact, the ones not making sense. It wasn't just her. The other humans were the same. They were all young by human standards, but even the older ones were just as odd. The larger male that seemed to enjoy speaking with Ashley and was currently observing her had tried to explain sarcasm to him, but going over the logs with the translated deck made them both weep in confusion. Ah, uh, I should be getting back to work. Your people are planning on building a skyscraper, and I need to make sure your misunderstandings are at a minimum. Paul learned early on to smile and nod before carrying on, instead of asking humans to explain themselves. Ashley was about to reply when her communicator angrily yelped at the same moment he stood. 
Bull looked at the message. Alert, Yakak ship spotted. Transport class transmitting intention to collect slaves and warning against opposition. What is this? Ashley asked, confused. The Yakak collect slaves to train and work. They have a use for our people in the water infrastructure of their off-world colonies. They train them young so they don't question anything. Bull swallowed hard, looking up from his communicator to see Ashley upset. Not upset. Each translator kept spitting out words like angry and furious before rage and insisting that he was in extreme danger. They are coming here. It was a statement that Paul weakly nodded to confirm. Everyone, listen up. Slave raid incoming. Get the young in the night pool. No one does. One door. Once they're inside, move a locker in front to hide the door itself and fill it with rocks. Paul watched as the tiny human ordered about the rest. Ebert, message the student program and forward every move we make so that they can do the same at the other locations. Everyone else grab or make weapons and barricades once the otters are safe. Ashley turned to Paul. Get your kids and the staff into the night pool. Don't make any noise and don't send any messages. Paul obeyed the stern expression that matched the determined glare of the general he had met at first contact despite the youthful nature it had. It was crowded, but everyone was inside the night pool, and he soon heard a large object moved in front of the door. Moments later, the bangs of rocks being put inside rang out. Rocks that would have taken him and three others to move with a crane cart were being tossed around like nothing. Another alert came informing him the ship had landed at the clearing for the skyscraper site. Remembering his rank, he logged into the nursery feed to check the cameras and saw the humans frantically moving about. They broke things, made things, did things he didn't understand. Wanting to understand more, he logged into the human network and saw the messages that they were sending, and focused on Ashley. Ashley, my daggers are on the way. Lock the doors to slow them down. Getting close so they can't shoot. No retreat, no surrender. And, for the love of everything cute and godly, no mercy. Bull felt a terrifying chill down his spine. He could see the humans getting ready, and the cack in the lot where the conveyance was parked. What followed was a horrifyingly transfixing to watch. The upright crabs crashed into the barricades at the front door, expecting them to give away. Instead, they were forced into a narrow gap that seemed to be left intentionally. Ashley could be seen on camera and heard through the walls. The bellows of a voice called out, the message being received at other locations identifying weak points as they were discovered. Poole could see the humans at the front reacting instantly, switching the direction of their stabs. Some of the weapons they used had been the safety rail they tore from the wall and bent repeatedly to break in a point. The rails his people needed welding tools to cut. The humans broke with their strength. Down one of the halls, leading to the rear door, humans had strung cables between each of the side intersections and attached a bucket to the middle. Using dolls, they ripped out the frames as cover. They used the cable to hurl rocks at the Yakak with surprising accuracy. Greater accuracy than the Yakak themselves with their firearms. Stones were cast and crushed the shells they struck. 
The few humans who did show signs of being shot showed no signs of slowing. Carcasses piled up everywhere the humans were, but more attackers were coming in, larger than even the human adults. Yukak seemed to have no physiological effect on the humans that they were trying to kill. The smaller ones leapt onto them and stabbed them under the plates on their back to bring them down before leaping onto the next. These humans were still supposed to be children not much more mature than the ones huddled around him in the dark. Ashley called out from the other side of the door and he saw a yukak had made its way to her. She was the smallest human at the nursery. She was shot three times as Pooh watched. She was on top of the giant crab and as many seconds later without so much as a weapon of her own. Her tiny fist struck out at her attacker as she was slammed against the walls in a frantic attempt to dislodge her. Bend. Ashley bellowed in rage at the crab, only to be met with its mandibles opening wide to do the same. Got you now, you f- Ashley screamed with what the translator insisted was vindictive glee. Bull watched as she ripped the lower mandibles off the crab and rammed them into the eye stalks, causing them to collapse as the stabbing ripped right into the brain case. It fell, and Ashley stood over the ruined carcass. Bull couldn't find any other yukak in the nursery. Not alive, anyway. Earthside Construction Company, we got their ship. Who's bringing the butter? Paul couldn't even. Standing outside, Paul watches the humans piled up the dead. How many did you lose? None. Neither here nor anywhere else, Ashley replied, inspecting her wounds. But you got shot. Others must have as well. Bull could see the red blood that didn't quite seem to be coming out anymore. As I said, I'm used to cat bites. These are only slightly worse, Ashley said as she watched Bull process what he heard like he did every time humans confused him. I don't understand humans, he sighed, letting his stress show. You were supposed to be monsters, but you handle our young with care and love like your own. Then you go and do this? He gestured to the piles of dead crabs. How can you be that and then this? Ashley rested her hand on his shoulder. It's the same thing. Bull broke down and wept, falling into the arms of the human. The monster. For the love of everything cute and cuddly, you are finally starting to understand us. Six months later, the Mola science director was defending his labeling of humans' first contact as success, and the Yukak slave empire was no more. He insisted it was clearly second contact that ended in a war. Paul shook his head when he read the first line of the Articles of Unconditional Surrender. To the Coalition of Armed Student Volunteers, for the love of everything cute and cuddly, in addition to the community service credit requirements, the Akak Empire offers their surrender. Humans were weird monsters. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1095 Humans at the Vet, written by Swifthound. Lesus was happy about his job working as a veterinarian on what some might even consider a core world, even if it wasn't near the core was happy being the core of the issue here. 
It hasn't even been a few years since humanity was discovered, but they have already proven their status as dependable workers with extreme pack bonding. Stick a human on virtually any ship or any crew and they start to form bonds at a heartbeat. This means that humans are now everywhere in the galaxy, and on almost every planet you will see a few humans registered. The problem is their somewhat unique biology. They differ from all other sentients just enough to make medical procedures difficult. Most medicines don't work or do the opposite of helping. That's where Lesus and the other veterinarians come into the picture. You see, the most popular pet in the galaxy happens to be a mammalian species called Thile. The Thile are, by complete chance, extremely close to humans in terms of biology. Enough so that most medicine and techniques work on them just as well as humans. And sure, a few sapient species share traits and medicine with the pets, but as the humans don't have sapient counterparts, and they're new in the galaxy, their biology hasn't been taught to most doctors yet. Which of course results in the veterinarians taking the brunt of the humans that pass through the worlds far away from their own. This includes our unfortunate Lesus, who sees more humans than pets these days. God fucking damn it! Why can't these fucking death worlders just leave me the feck alone? I swear to the universe that they find pleasure in injuring themselves. Lesus threw another empty bottle of file medicine towards the wall, shattering it and scattering the pieces mostly in the trash. Liz, we've been over this. They pay more than any file owner that I've seen and they don't try and escape when administering shots of medicine. They're the best customers and the best behaved ones. Lesus' colleague, Ode, had this conversation every once in a while. Mostly after a human comes in with an injury that only real doctors could fix in other sapiens. The humans come in here with burns, bleeding, chemical burns, concussions, lacerations, and even broken bones. One of them even had a steel rod going through their lung. How in the fuck did that even happen? I am a fucking doctor, and I have no fucking clue. It's as if the universe wants them to live through anything. All I do is close their wounds and replace the blood. Slamming her desk, she looks at the appointments, and upon seeing two more humans in a row, she lets her head smack the desk with a loud thud. Please, let them have normal issues, like not eating or insomnia. Her cries go unanswered, however, as the next human enters the room and shows her right arm bent at an entirely new joint. Hey, Doc, um... I broke my arm trying to lift some cargo, but it fell over and crushed the bone. Uh, can you mend it? Lesus, now in shock. This thing was worst fractures that she'd ever seen, even with humans. I, I, um, I can try. How are you even conscious? How are you talking? Lesus was in complete shock at this point, having seen bad things like pets mauled by other pets, but those were mostly shadow wounds and bruises. Nothing life-threatening or debilitating but this. This was way, way, way worse. This bracelet on my shoulder stops the electrical signals for pain going through. Paralyzes the arm. So, um, what's next? This is what she's always so unnerved about. This is what Lisa's hates the most. Seeing something so horrible, treated as mundane. Something like it just happens and then you fix it. Most species would get their arm mended, of course, 
but they would react horribly at even the memory of the accident. Humans seem just to struggle both the physical injury and the psychological ones as well. Lisas had started to doubt if they even had psychological injuries from physical injuries. Let's, um, just get you onto the damn table and get this all worth. Having done an hour-long surgery, which included putting the human to sleep to prevent the mental trauma and complications, opening the tissue around the arm to see the shattered fragments of the bone, throwing up in the garbage can and washing her hands again, taking each piece of bone and mending it back to resemble the original one, using an entire bottle of file regeneration helper to speed up the process, closing up the wound and checking for bleeding. Finding the bleeding to be in acceptable levels, she decided to just let the human heal it themselves. This had already been more than she signed up for. Going to wank the human up with an injection, she saw them staring right at her. Ah! What the feck? How are you awake? What, what was I not supposed to be? The human must have been silent through the entire operation and just watched their arm be opened and healed. It's not like I felt anything, so uh, what's the problem? The injection I gave you was supposed to put you to sleep for hours if not given the antidote. How the feck are you still awake? I saw you fall asleep. Yeah, I, I had to drop off for a few minutes. I'd assumed, but I woke up in the middle while you were working on my arm. Though it was strange, but uh, I didn't feel anything, and you were focused, so I saw no reason to take it up with you. Your, your arm will be healed in a few weeks. Keep the metal frame attached and try to avoid heavy use. Now, please, get out. This would have cost millions in credits had this mistake been done on another sapient. She'd used the wrong dosage, one appropriate for a file tenth the size of the human. Sure thing, Doc. Thanks a lot. Payment should be arriving in just a moment. This is the ship's contact info if you need to give anything more. The human left the door, leaving Lazarus alone in the room. Another empty bottle of medicine flies across the room, landing nowhere near the garbage. A knock comes by the door. The next customer is waiting. Come on, she manages to say before remembering it was also a human. She curses inwardly and waits for an abject terror, expecting something just as bad or even worse. She winces as the door opens, only to show a human with no injuries to be seen. Hey, um, Doc, could I buy a, a bottle of that, um, file regeneration helper? I've got a mechanic with some pretty bad burns on his arm. This is something she wasn't normally supposed to do as the dosages could easily become deadly for file. Humans, however, could use the bottle however they wished, drink it, inject it, or pour it in their eyes. They look at it as a cure-all, which, in all fairness, it is to them. Sure, yeah, 206 credits. Lesus doesn't want to know more, and thus doesn't ask. She just wants the human gone from her clinic, and to never come back. She doesn't hate the humans, she just hates what they consider normal. All Lisa's wanted was to help pets and other creatures to make them happy. Now she's being subjected to bodily horrors above her pay grade, even if the pay is better. Again, alone in the room, she speaks to herself. I just wanted to help animals. I just wanted to help animals... I just wanted to help animals. I just wanted to help animals. I just wanted to help animals. 
This goes on for a while, until she looks at her tablet and sees four more humans on their way, apparently having been drinking rocket fuel until passing out. Lesis has truly lost the joy in her job. Hearing a knock at the door, Lesis is left confused the four humans shouldn't be arriving yet. She finds a human without an appointment. Can I help you? I have four humans coming down here soon, and I need an entire room for them, so this has to be fast. I hope this isn't serious, sir. It's my dog. He hasn't been eating for two days, and I'm worried sick. Lisa's pokes up instantly, forgetting all the crap that she's been through today. Now she gets to help an actual pet, even if it is a human one. Sure, let me take a look. Bring it up on the table, yeah, and uh, that's great. Pupils are fine. No fur loss. Heartbeat is fine. She stops in the middle of the sentence, having found an issue at hand. There's a ball of some kind in her stomach. It's obstructing the way to the intestine. Well, uh, that's two mysteries solved. His favorite ball went missing around the same time. Anything you can do to help? Pets eating things they're not supposed to. This was what she had originally signed up for. Simple problems and simple solutions. Yeah, no problem with that, but I'll have to do surgery. This won't take long. Don't worry, it's safe. Prepping the table once again, she goes through the motions, almost happy about the dog having swallowed a ball as it gave her some actual patient. She puts the dog under, cuts it open, and retrieves the ball. After she closes the dog up and applies the canine regeneration helper, Taking no more than ten minutes, the dog has just been carried home and tended to for a while. There you go, good as new. Try and keep him from eating more toys. Lezus was beaming with pride as the owner hugged her pet and cried with joy. This was what she loved about her job. Thank you so much, Doc. I'll recommend you to everyone I know. You have no idea how much this helps. The human keeps hugging her dog while not speaking. It's, um... No problem, but please don't recommend me to more humans. I have my hands full with your people already. <laughs> yeah, I've heard rumors. Well, then I guess I'll just thank you and pay. Best of luck with the human patience. Lisa's now almost jumping in joy at having helped the pet, says a goodbyes to the human and the dog, giving a treat to be handed out once the dog wakes up. She would have stayed in a good mood for hours if not for the banging at a door and four new guests arriving, it stretches. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1096 Hyperinflation Written by Calamity Comet It was the fourth jumper, the standard. An accountant, well, liked in his office, who had hurled himself from the 30th floor. The gravity nets near the base of the tower had stopped his fall, of course, though the ground floor security had immediately detained the unfortunate accountant. Officers with law enforcement stamps on their shells had trundled through the office that day, shaking their eye stalks in exasperation. One of these days, someone is going to slip through the nets if administration doesn't up their strength, an officer had exclaimed near the entrance just this morning. A nook could do nothing but exhale through his mandibles and shake his eye stalks in agreement. It had only been five days since the first run of the banks, but the human situation already occupied all of Hanuk's professional attention. He entered his office from the lift and tapped the floor panel with a claw on his forefoot twice in quick repetition. 
The wall across from him became a vid screen. It was playing a news report on the Economy and Good Governance Channel. Despite the protests, the Minister of the Economy of the Markets have spoken. Galactic credit ratings are falling like stones, while the value of the human currency continues to rise. Economists are stumped, and with reports like the one submitted by the opposition party to the central bank this morning, the government may have no choice but to... Hanak tapped the floor again and the vid screen closed abruptly. He sighed and hesitated before risking a look at his portfolio. He closed it as quickly as the news vid. He did not bother opening the account for his retirement fund. Just as soon as these humans had appeared on the galactic stage, they'd been eager to open their markets. And as soon as they had, the galactic market had wheeled so sharply that the reverberations were still shaking the economy to its foundations. Hanuk wished that he could speak with one of those damnable bipeds at the human central bank and get a clearer first-hand picture of what exactly was wrong with their markets. It was the most researched topic in the galaxy currently, but despite that, nobody seemed to have the faintest idea of how the human economy actually worked. Hunak jumped a few channels to a foreign affairs and was stunned to see what appeared to be an Ukrav riot. Throngs of those gangly aliens were formed into a mob. Protesters shouted catchy anti-human slogans, while the group ahead of them dressed all in black stormed the doors of the Ukrav Central Bank. Riot police lobbed canisters of tear gas and beat out protesters with batons held in all four arms. The Chiron read... Ukrov State halts superluminal trading, disconnect, and symbols. It's all such chaotic nightmare, Krita said from outside Hanak's door. Hanak startled slightly to see the intern so suddenly outside his office. He hurriedly dusted off his shell and gestured back towards the vid screen, which was still playing images of the ghastly scene of Ukrov Prime. And it's all for what? Unak said, the Ukrofs must realize until the bond situation in human space calms down, halting interplanetary trading won't fix the problem. They're putting galls on a split shell. He shook his eye store and huffed through his mandibles. The Ukrof government clearly had no idea how to fix the problem. But then again, neither did his own. Human messaging on the subject is inconsistent and confused as ever. Krita had said while she straightened out the rocks on the periphery of Hunuk's office floor. She chittered in frustration and suddenly seemed to snap back to the present. I'm also here to inform you that your request for a meeting with the Interior Minister of the Human Central Bank was declined. Hunak glowered at the predictable rejection, but Krita was not done talking. However, I managed to snag you a different meeting through a back channel. The good news is that it's with one of the larger private lenders, and they're even paying for this sensible time. The bad news is that it is scheduled five standard minutes from now. Greta patted her shell apologetically. I know you haven't been checking your private feeds. I ran you as fast as I could. Then why are we making small talk about Ukrabs? Gunak began to say, but he caught the thought in his throat before speaking. He made a gesture for a deep appreciation in one claw, the gesture for please leave my office with another. A third claw made an inappropriate gesture behind his shell, 
a fourth began clearing his floor hurriedly to tidy up as fast as possible. As Creda left, Hunak cleared rocks from his floor, smoothed the sand under his claws, and dimmed the windows to a pleasing hue. He knew humans were not accustomed to his species. One had once remarked to him that officers in Hunak's species looked more like Zen gardens than places of work. Hunak had later looked up a picture of one of those gardens, and he agreed, readily enough. They were charming. He had not spoken, he thought that human officers looked more like morgues. The human who appeared on the vid screen was identified by AI narration as middle-aged, male, and dressed in formal wear. The AI added discreetly that he was starting to lose his hair. He sat in one of those incredibly uncomfortable-looking human chairs seated behind a large wooden desk. Hunak rattled his back mouth parts to make the human throat clearing sound. You must be the Jung in Park from Deutschbank. The human smiled. Richard Park, actually. You may have an outdated form, though it is of no concern. Uh, and you must be... Had truly, the human tried his absolute best, though the sound that left his mouth resembled nothing close to Hunak's full name. Hunak was amused to find the human banker even tried to do the clicks that other species couldn't really ever make properly. Hunak's species could not physically smile, but he relaxed his shoulders. My turn for corrections. You can simply call me Hunak. Thank you for your courtesy. He and the human exchanged formalities a bit longer, and then got into the more technical details. Above all, Hunak hoped this call would finally clear up some of the confusion. But as the conversation began to unroll, Hunak's hopes had flagged. The humans just had so many incomprehensible buzzwords. Mr. Park had started with an explanation of humanity's general economic outlook. He panned through the slides of various assorted projections and future outlook indexes for the nation and off-world trading companies. But nothing he was saying lined up. The market fluctuations had strongly implied that the humans possessed economic strength far above what had been projected. But Mr. Park's slides seemed to be mostly matched those original projections. The markets were treating humanity's economic outlook as vastly better than it seemed to be. Then Mr. Park said something that made Hunak's shell feel brittle. The human central bank released a report today stating that the galactic currencies are seriously undervalued given economic expectations. Some might have argued that it might be deliberate currency manipulation, but the HCB believes it is a clear sign of hyperinflation. Stop, Hunak said. A clear sign of what? The human looked startled. AI narration agreed that he was. Well, any currency is subject to both inflationary and deflationary forces. The amount of currency in circulation affects this value. In a situation where a monetary supply is rapidly increased, a currency may become debased and undergo a rapid devaluation over time that we term hyperinflation. Hunak nearly choked. The sound brought the human's explanation to a halt. Hunak gathered his thoughts. I don't understand... Why would humanity's sense of their currency's value rise so quickly? What prevents human currency from conforming to its objective standard value under current conditions? Now, it was the human's turn to look puzzled. Conforming, uh, to its what? The banger cleared his throat over the protest noises coming from the back of Hunak's throat. 
Hunak recalled the first paragraph of Economics 101. Any sapient species possesses a sense of objective standard value. This allows accurate pricing of goods and allows the species to agree on a set of value for its currency and assets. These values may change based on conditions, but the whole species necessarily agrees on them. It's a basic law of biology as well as economics. Now the human looked positively shocked. He accidentally launched a pen that he had been fidgeting with off his desk. After a false start, he cleared his throat. It's uh, not a matter of current conditions. Human currency is purely fiat. Its value is a reflection of public faith in its value. That statement might as well have been plasma torch held to Hunak's beloved economics textbooks. The current central bank is attempting a ninth round of quantitative easing that involves the purchase of government-issued bonds. We are attempting to increase the relative level of inflation to minimize the negative effects of our current market volatility on the galactic markets. It has come to our attention only recently that such acts of monetary policy do not uh, exist in other galactic economies. The human straightened his tie. No, I personally had not been informed about this concept of objective standard value. Hunak was sure that his shell was now a shade paler. No matter that such a change required many days, he dared to ask the question that had been forming behind his mandibles. The human race has no sense of objective standard value. Correct, the human banker stated bluntly. And because it never occurred to us that such a thing could exist, I suppose we never bothered to ask. We may have done less than what was required to limit the effects of our market speculation on the galaxy. It did not occur to us that our economy would be the only one with the possibility of a limitless rate of growth. If what you've told me is true, compared to your currencies, the potential value of ours is essentially infinite. It will likely require a major reorganization of the economy to stop these fluctuations. The human now also looked pale. Well, we all likely will come out ahead... It could still take decades for the approaching recession to end. And it hasn't even been officially declared. Hunak gathered his thoughts. He calmly flexed his legs. He dislodged the mandible in the back of his mouth that he had nearly choked on in shock. The ramifications were enormous. A species that lacked a sense of objective standard value could price its assets at arbitrary amounts. Its currency could wildly fluctuate. Interest rates could be made artificially low or high. Canny human traders who realized galactic economies could not do these things could take advantage of them. Galactics who realized that they lacked the ability would overvalue human economic power, which would of course devaluate galactic currencies. Objective standard value wasn't fixed. It could drop when a species collectively realized it was being outcompeted, which was already happening. Hunak thought back to the Okrovs and then what Mr. Park had said. Hyperinflation. It was a realization so simple but so impossible that Hunak shuddered. Their economy was not limited by biology. Humans were not constrained by the most basic economic force in the galaxy. Hunak took many deep breaths. Thank you, Mr. Park. It has been a pleasure, but I'm afraid I must cut this meeting short. I hope you understand... The human banker nodded politely, and the vid call ended. Hunak yelled for a full five minutes, 
The sound like coins being thrown into a fry pan reverberated around his office. What could he do? His species couldn't just abandon their biology fixed assessment of value. They couldn't compete. Human traders would wreak havoc on galactic markets unopposed. Nothing their central bank did would abate their inherent advantage. Hunak instructed his AI to divest from the market, but knew that there was little point. After pacing around his office, he sent his supervisor his resignation. He carefully arranged the rocks in his office and groomed the sandy floors to perfection. Like the black sand beaches of his birth. He stepped out of his office and tapped the wall to call the lift. He spoke the command. Thirteenth floor, please. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1097 The Meaning of Wunig Written by Wolf21342 The Imperial High Court Chamber of the Uthrati Empire A conference on the proposed expansionism of the trade war with the Terran Alliance rages on. The many perceived slights, the encroachment into their empire space of uh, colonists settling on any planet in range, and the open disregard for the authority of the Imperial Court, as prescribed by the gods of old and new, has gone on for too long and could not be ignored. In truth, the war had already been ongoing for a number of cycles as a series of small border conflicts. But such border skirmishes have been the fact of life for the Empire far longer than anyone wanted to mention. Thus, no attention was given to it other than the dispatch of the elite First Defense Fleet in an attempt to quell the rabble-rousers and to show everyone that the Imperial Authority was supreme. Show the flag, to use the old parlance. The shock we all received when the news came through that the fleet had been destroyed was not the worst one. No, that only came when the Terrans dispatched a messenger informing the Imperial Court that the elite ground forces the fleet was carrying were now uh, prisoners of war, and that the Terrans expected the Empire forces to conduct themselves according to their Terran rules of war. All of this with nary a tribute or obeisance that were required when speaking to the Supreme Emperor of the Urathi Empire, the Chosen of the Gods, Lord over all that exists, Master of the Galaxy, and all of its inhabitants. The messenger was now sitting in a cell, waiting public execution, and the court was debating the response against his homeworld. This light could not be forgiven, nor could it be forgotten. And Terrans were to learn that lesson. The High Admiral of the Uthrati Navy speaks. Now experts have looked out to the so-called rules of war that the Terrans are insisting on. They are laughable. Places not to attack, symbols to obey, weapons not to use. Why would we ever agree to that? My colleague seems to forget that these primitives are holding our first division hostage subject to our acceptance of these terms, said the High General of the Empire. Even with the losses our warriors took, that is more than 8,000 of sons and daughters of our most prominent military families, and the emissary brought a damned list of them. These families have significant standing of their own below the throne and I have no doubt that they have also this list already. 
These warriors are as good as dead already, just like the ones that served my ships. Do you actually believe that they'll ever be returned to their families? Much as I hate to get between the various military branches, I had no choice but to step in. There is a good chance that they will, if we follow the Terran's rules. Yeah, the Chief Tavak is not a deaf mute after all. The people's speaker never misses a chance to score some points with the court. Intelligence work is despised as untouchable in the Empire. Thus, I'm here due to necessity. Not because I'm actually wanted or respected, or even permitted to voice opinions, really. So, I tune them out for a while. Why do you gruck? Think that they would return our warriors, hmm? As per the standing order of our emperor, beloved by all, I have the duty to study all of our neighbors, and the Terran Alliance is no exception to that. And in fact, it has been a primary target of the investigation due to a couple of interesting oddities in their physique and military capability. Why were we not warned that they can destroy our prime fleet then? The High Admiral and the High General shout in unison before the Speaker manages to silence them. Finally, they given neither him nor her sound anything alike normally, but I found it best not to dwell on such things. If my military colleagues would recall, the topic was broached in Session 322-42, and it has been dismissed as unlikely. Quote, end quote. You are welcome to consult the minutes of the session after we have finished here. In truth, both of them had laughed me out of the chamber, and I still have official reprimand from the throne in my personal file for sedation due to expression of public doubt in supremacy of Empire military over all others. So, I'm trying very hard not to sound too smug. The question raised cuts to belief that humans will return our warriors if we follow their rules and I have to stress that we would need to follow them, not just agree to follow and later ignore. Due to the nature of our work, we in the intelligence office have had to look at Terran history, and what we have found out is quite frankly horrifying. The rules they wrote are the result of thousands of cycles of conflicts, quite a few of them globe-spanning especially in the last 400 cycles before they reached space. I can't avoid a bit of sarcasm in my next words. My colleagues and our military forces seem quite oblivious to the fact that the Terrans are only sapient species we know of that have used chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons against their own people before they even left their own planet. They know exactly what these weapons can do. They know exactly what the policy of not taking prisoner causes. They know what happens when you war against a whole population of the state. And they have restricted themselves only after testing these methods on themselves. There is a catch in this, however. They only obey those rules against others who follow the same rules. What their emissary has said, rude as it was, should be interpreted as a threat. Don't make us resort to this barbarity, for we are fully capable of carrying it all out. And you are not. Some of the counselors had gone pale at this point. The speaker finally found his voice, though. 
and asked what I know must have been a hard question to ask, given that his son was one of the 8,000 prisoners. He is not without some degree of personal courage, but politically, he still is a bootlicker, and his rank is barely higher than mine is. But if we were to consider our prisoners dead, disregard the terror rules, escalate and attack terror itself, can we wipe the shame of defeat and conquer them? I thought for a moment. No! That had a whole chamber in uproar. I waited a short while for it to die down, and ultimately the speaker managed to bring some semblance of order to the proceeding. Please, please let me finish. It's not that our military can't fight them. It certainly can. Though losses must be expected, and they will be considerable, it is not that they are not vulnerable to attack. In fact, this system is not as fortified as any of ours would be in Wear's situation. None of that matters. We have learned from multiple sources they almost certainly have weapons that are intended to wipe the life out of a whole planet which they will use if the need arises and to keep it dead for hundreds of cycles afterwards. And you are certain that these doomsday weapons are pointed at us? Don't you think we learned about their existence a little too easily? If I had devices like that, I'd hide them until I could use them to win the war, asked one of the junior naval admirals, with doubt clearly presented in his voice. I silently commended him for being a bit smarter than his boss. Our agents have investigated using all available assets, and the conclusion is this. They actually want anyone belligerent towards them to know that a system like that exists. As a deterrent, to quote one of the assets, it's not much of a doomsday device if you don't tell the world about it. You see, the purpose of these weapons is not to win a war. Their sole purpose is to ensure that we don't win it either. I bide the whole council, mulling over the next words in my head. As my future and the future of my whole empire depended on that everyone here actually understood the danger. My emperor, the honorable lords of the council, we are certainly capable of overwhelming their defenses with our military force, but that is not sufficient to win against them. To win against them means to sacrifice our own most populated worlds, including the very imperial homeworld that we are currently standing on. And nothing, not even killing all the Terrans will stop that. To put it simply, if we win, we die with them. A shudder ran through the assembled officials. To win at these terms would be a loss of the Empire, and thus no different from defeat. The Emperor broke the silence for the first time after a long, long while. What, then, do you propose, my servant? My beloved Emperor, what I propose is this. Release their emissary, unharmed, and expel him from the Empire with the strongest rebuke that we can muster. Include the suspended death sentence for crimes against the Empire should he ever return. It'll look good, and Terrans understand that kind of thing. We then issue a ceasefire order and switch from a trade war to an economic capture attempt. Their greed is their biggest weakness. Long silence followed, until finally the Emperor spoke again. As much as the gods will hate it. As much as I personally hate it. It has to be done. 
do it. I relax a little now that the decision is made. It is likely we'll avoid this crisis, though I am certain the Terrans will find a way to screw it up for all of us. The Section Chief of the Terran Alliance Special Documentation Office listened with rapt attention to the recording of the Imperial Court meeting, then looked up at his immediate superior. Didn't I tell you that my counterpart in the Empire is a smart cookie? She does understand us quite well for an Imperial. It helps us they rarely listen to her. Yes, yes you did. Do you think they'll actually do it? Ceasefire and open borders for trade. No, they'll do it, boss. To deny Imperial order straight out of the Emperor's mouth would be heresy. What they don't realize, though, is that leaves them open to economic capture as well. And we've had years to learn that game, too. If I'm not mistaken, she is the only one that realizes that at this point. They will learn, though. Oh, they will most certainly learn. And there is nothing that they can do about it. The section chief and his boss shared a quick, very, very toothy smile. It was a good day for the Terran Alliance. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1098 The Engineer, written by Pickpocket Clad in tattered clothes, which hung listlessly from its frame, the figure weaved its way through the busy port come market. Every few movements, an odd skip shuffle as they twirled and shifted around far larger and far bulkier beings. Each dexterous dodge joined with a faint clank of metal tools and a groan of an overladen pack. It was this poorly balanced sight which first greeted Mulyarin, a Huron in the middle adult stage, and this odd, well-wrapped entity which extended a hand, the tattered fabrics receding slightly to reveal a set of five pink near-porcelain digits. At first, this oddly delicate structure caught his attention. Only for a single visible pupil of almost radiant green hidden beneath the deep hood and almost vantablack fur, which later would be explained to him as hair, to steal his focus entirely. You posted for an engineer. For the distinct difference in apparent height and approximate form, the creature spoke Huri to near perfection a fact which only slicked when the Universal Translator finished converting the speech into galactic common. So, uh, when do I start? An odd weight found itself threaded through the unbeat intonation, a view of lead woven into a mixture of excitement and pride. Oh, um, I've got a box being delivered to the space soon, uh, just so you know. You, uh, the engineer, yes, um, this way... Gesturing up to the lowered ramp, the Huron turned slightly, paused misstep. But are you engineer? You're too small for Karak, too thin for Jurin, and uh, you certainly are no phage. Though you can just call me engineer, or E, I guess, if you really want. Without waiting, they set off once more, booted feet carrying the ramp figure up the ramp, causing Mayuran to have to start jogging to catch up. That doesn't answer my question. Is what I am that important? This is the room. There are pirates and adventure. That is all that is important. No? I suppose so. Okay, then. Why did you sign on? It's hardly the most comfortable ship. And in the least safe portion of the galaxy. 
Whether the wild wind blows, so goes to my heart. That <clears throat> I'm just going where the solar winds blow me. A wanderer, then. Did the backpack give that away? No. Well, yes. Ugh, never mind. This way. With a sigh, he placed a hand against the pad recessed into the wall, waiting for a moment before the door opened. Need to scrap. Scan my right hand, get all the permission and sh uh, stuff set up. Got it. Unwrapping a hand, the appendage was then pressed to the scanner, ending in a gentle bleep and a ping. Myometric print now registered. They turned back, grinning at the Huron. A deeply unsettling display of teeth. Some for the grinding, some for tearing. All clear demarcation of a predator. Where to next, Captain? spoke the entity, with its rows of bone razors. The Huron captain had been right about the lack of comfort the engineer allowed itself to concede. The cabin allotted to them was tucked in beside the engine room, which meant two things. One, it was hot, uncomfortably so. Clearly, whoever had planned out the accommodations had forgotten to consider habitability for the space. Two, it was oddly shaped. The entire floor plan square, save for the half-moon cut out where the engine itself backed against the room. An unfortunate situation, which led to the bed being raised to just under two feet from the ceiling. But still, it worked for their purposes. There was a small desk and a few power ports, snug but livable if occupant had some form of passive cooling, that is. Needing, they began to go through the backpack withdrawing a toolkit as large as their torso before setting it down and returning to the pack once more, retrieving a square plate which was dutifully set against the wall, a button press later, then the plate extended out to a full-length mirror. A slight sigh escaped the lips of the last of the unwrappings were removed, the shorter length, light-absorbing black hair swaying slightly under the effects of the forcefully boosted air cycle vent. She felt good, standing there playfully throwing a few stupid poses at the mirror. It definitely looked good to see fibrous muscle dance beneath painted skin. A smile crept across her lips then, the expression widening as the telltale feeling of a ship-breaking orbit rumbled beneath her feet. Onwards and upwards, a mumbled phrase offered to no one in particular as they returned to the toolkit hoisting a mass of metal and plastic in a way that would have had the captain staring in disbelief. Time to see what I'm working with. The ship itself followed through on the theme. Old military surplus clunker from border wall so minor and so old, no one really remembered or cared about it. To this, a cargo bay had been welded. At least, it was spaceworthy. Well, spaceworthy enough. The entire motif pulled together by the half-dozen crew members and their half-dozen species. A thrown-together ship with a thrown-together crew. This excited the engineer, almost as much as the chance to tinker with the sublight engines excited them. Something that they knew inspired equal parts curiosity and fear in the captain over the last few days. But the captain was neither here nor there at present. The work request had been clear, and the rising Carrick would be FTL for the next 12 hours or so. Therefore, the engineer set to work. There is something truly humbling about seeing plasma manifolds disassembled and stacked in a sorting system so complex it would appear as chaos to the untrained eye. 
Or perhaps it simply was a kind of carefully curated chaos. Something or inspiring in watching an odd furless ape creature with painted flesh and an apparent need for a very little clothing clamber and swing across the multi-million credit engine bay like it was a child's playroom. It was only further terrifying to watch said ape disconnect a live thermal pump and then jack that still active pump directly into the sublight buffer. Equal parts, terrifying and mesmerizing. The ape abruptly let go of the pipe that they were hanging from, allowing their form to fall a few feet before both hands shot out to grab a passing support, the momentum being used to swing them up and over, legs hooking over the bar as she then hung inverted, staring at the observer. Can I help you, little guy? The alien blinked slightly, the sudden speech from the ape breaking him finally out of the strange mesmerization that had settled upon his shoulders since the moment he'd entered the bay. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I needed to ask about... A bead of clear liquid formed on the slowly ran down the ape's abdomen, leaving a faint trail which glimmered under the glow cast of the engine. Cocking her head slightly, their features contorted in confusion, followed by a ripple passing through its form as the engineer shifted themselves. Ask about what, little guy? That was a little insulting. After all, Zinni was a full head taller than his broodmates. It wasn't his fault this ape engineer stood a good two heads above the tallest Alctian. It took all he could do to avoid rising to the insult, however unwitting it may have been. Yes, um, I need to ask about, uh, ask about... It was growing hard and harder to think straight in this heat. His tongue lulled out of a desperate attempt to radiate away the excess heat somehow. Sh shower. The word was offered at near wine as the oppressive atmosphere seemed to weigh heavier. With a slight shrug, the ape simply let go then, descending in a freefall only to land with a solid but oddly harmless kathunk against the floor plating. She straightened up and gestured towards the bay doors again, making a concerning series of high-pitched squeaks as it followed him out. It was fascinating watching the ape work with the plumbing, seeing how quickly its damaged pipes were isolated, removed and replaced, only serving to sire more questions as to why it had not been repaired sooner. The captain surely could have spared some money months ago for this. The ape, to her credit, didn't seem all that bothered by his hovering, or by the way he kept asking questions. In fact, she had found it rather endearing, watching the little red panda-esque being handing her requested tools and holding parts in that adorable way. It led to more than a few tense moments when he would try and avoid her hands as the engineer subconsciously reached out to pet him, like some common animal. I, um, have another question... Holding out the size 30 square ball wrench, Zinni finally decided to voice his thoughts. And that'll be... What actually are you? I mean, what species are you? It's really not that important. You're not going to find any more. They headed out the other direction entirely. Well, where are you from then? Past the Galactic Rim, pretty much on the other side of the local group from what I can put together. How, um, how are you from past the room? You couldn't cross that distance in a whole lifetime. You'd be surprised. Okay, fine. Those paintings on your back, are they tribal markings? 
Um, no, uh, not tribal markings. Uh, or, well, uh, not all of them. What do you, um, do, uh, do all of your kind have them? Oh, no, no, uh, in fact, some places wouldn't even hire you if you have them. Why would they discriminate over tribal markings? My kind are just, um, they drew a lot of arbitrary lines in places. Deftly, the engineer withdrew a small pouch from a kit, piercing it with the provided straw and taking a large gulp. Why are you so wet? Bursting into a spluttering cough as a mouthful of fluey pack first went down the wrong hole and then proceeded to coat the opposite wall of the electrolyte mess of rehydrants. Are you okay? Are, are you injured? No, no, I'm fine. For a few minutes, the silence settled. Zinni, afraid to raise any further questions, and the engineer, clearly not interested in restriking conversation. So, um, you said there are tribal marks. It was a tentative question, offered in a low, grumbling tone that signaled apologies to the actuan. Yeah, at least you guys call them that. We call them tattoos. Tattoos? And do they still mark one's tribe? They can. We yeah, use them for a whole mess of things. Ah, feck, here. Setting down the wrench, she stood up, having to keep her knees partially bent so as to allow herself to see the massive images on the bathroom's mirror. Okay, see this one? That's for me, brother. He was the best damn pilot I ever knew. She pointed at the depiction of a pitch-black object, all sleek angles and burning engines. And this one is from the third colonial engineer's. Again, her fingers shifted, pointing to the large image which took up the greater part of skin over the upper center of her back. What appeared to be a planet, behind which a rifle and a wrench sat crossed. What are... Um, now, are these third colonial engineers your clan? D does your kind have clans for every profession? My clan, I... Uh, I guess you could say that, yeah. A clan, sure, that's my clan. Call three, a clan of one. She shifted slightly, eyes dancing over the rest of the tapestry covering her back. The more personal marks hidden by a band of fabric protecting what little dignity remained. Her face contorted slightly, then as memories behind the art began to rise. She ducked back down abruptly after returning to loosening a bolt in what she would hope to be silence. Why is it a clan of one? Because it is... But why? Are you the clan matriarch? Surely there must be some males or other females out there. There was a look, one that turned the Actian's blood to ice under its piercing, withering gaze. No more questions. To his credit, Zeni fell silent and remained so till the task was completed and the engineer stalked off into the dimly lit corridor. He enjoyed a nice, cold, long shower after that letting icy water take the sweat, heat, and awkwardness away with it. By the time the luxury was over, he had lodged a mental note to inquire about doing something to reduce the ambient temperature of the ship as a whole. After, the engineer had time to cool off, of course. Or at least, after she had managed to move past his little faux pas. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1099 The Dead Race Written by Mercury the Dealer The galaxy is a dangerous place. It is filled with pirates, exterminators, deceivers, and a million other dangers that every empire must deal with. 
Our ancestors dealt with these problems much like we did, by thinking about themselves. Empires betrayed each other, went to war, made peace, forged and broke alliances thousands of times per day. Empires rose and fell, yet nothing changed for thousands, perhaps millions of years. That is until the monsters came. We don't know where they came from, who or what made them, not even if they were made, or just some sort of twisted natural force. All we know is that they fought our ancestors. Well, calling it a fight is not fair. It was more akin to beating a small child. The monsters are glassed entire worlds. Their leviathans so gigantic that they covered whole stars. Their hordes so great that they could cover continents. It didn't take long to realize that they couldn't stand alone against such monstrosities. And so... For the first time in recorded galactic history, all nations stood united against this enemy. The Tentarats warmed their ancient shipyards once more. The peaceful Fredeligians, for the first time in a millennia, prepared for war. People that were once sworn enemies marched shoulder by shoulder. Against their foes, the might of an entire galaxy fighting the monsters with all they could. Our ancestors were sure they would not only win, but eradicate this threat. They lost. The monsters didn't slow down. Not once they retreated, not once they'd lost, it became evident that the godless things enjoyed toying with their enemies. Planets would be bombarded for months simply for pleasure of seeing the population's will slowly crumble. And if the people ever grew too apathetic towards their suffering, they would stop the bombardment to give them a flicker of hope, which would be swiftly snuffed out by one of the monster's hungry leviathans. In the end, most empires broke, some at the hands of the monsters, some split over civil war, some simply retreated into the interstellar void. The remaining knew that they could not wonder. But they had an idea. They could never kill the monsters. But they could trick them. They made a new intelligent species. They were strong, not so that they could defend themselves, but because it was more entertaining to fight something that possesses a challenge. They were fast, not so that they could chase after prey, but so that they could be fun to chase after. They were made smart, not so that they could build great inventions, but because prey that adapts never becomes too boring to kill. Empathy, endurance, determination, they gave that species a million blessings knowing that those were disguised curses. Curses that would ensure that when the monsters finally reached Sol, they would stay there, toying with the poor creatures, just long enough for the empires to make a trap. They could not destroy the monsters, but they could imprison them a cage was set with technology barely understood, gifted by even more ancient empires shortly before they too collapsed. They built a trap, and that species was the lure. In the end, the Alabari were the ones to name the species. They called them humans. Gaia is an ancient word for the Alabari. 
It is the name of the pedestal in which animals would be sacrificed, usually to give the city protection from evil spirits. A voting name for the third planet of the Sol system. The planet was lush with life, though none of it was intelligent. Humans were sent to this planet with basic tools and weapons, along with schematics and cultural texts as the ancients could fill the ship's service with. Lastly, the ancients filled the planet with anti-war weapons meant to activate once the monsters surrounded the planet. It wouldn't destroy them, but it would certainly slow them down. Then, humanity was left alone to entertain the coming beasts while the ancients made the final preparations of the trap. The day came. The monsters reached Gaia and a single massive fleet surrounded the planet, too drunk with anticipation to check for any traps. And for the first time in centuries, their unstoppable march grinded to a halt. The planet's defenses shot against the fleets with all their might. Enough metal to build a moon was launched towards the beasts. Lasers as bright as supernovas melt through the flesh of the feared leviathans. Black old missiles destroyed millions before fading. In the end, the monsters were broken, but not destroyed. Their remains would still be enough to destroy the ancestors, which is why after the last of the projectiles were launched, the last of the laser batteries were dried, and the last of the missiles were activated. The Great Barrier came online. Hyperlanes were broken with experimental technology. Hundreds of layers of antimatter fields all activated in unison. Stars were forced to go supernova. A million pieces came together in perfect harmony to imprison the monsters inside. The ancestors slowly rebuilt themselves. A new era had begun, one that would surely bring peace and prosperity to all. Monuments were raised in celebration to the defeat of the monsters. Humanity became a symbol of honorable sacrifice. The great martyrs of the galaxy a species that they promised would never be forgotten. We broke that promise. It happened slowly at first. A few empires put less effort into teaching ancient history. Some others were born long after the monster's defeat and thus didn't care about some ancient dead race. We had more important matters to teach after all. Technology, politics, war. Databases with human history were white because... Why waste all that space on a dead species? Soon, things were back to the way they usually were. Filled with pirates, experiments, deceivers, and a million other dangers that every empire must deal with. And like usual, all empires looked after themselves, and only themselves. All things as they should be. Until they weren't. The first to notice were the prospect a research station close to the Great Barrier detected a small breach, normal in that region, except that instead of shrinking, this one was growing. Antimatter fields were set up in the region. They did not stop the breach. More fuel was added to the ancient generators. That also did nothing. Soon, other empires found out about the breach. Panic and horror ensued. Some believed that it was a natural occurrence due to the ancient generators finally fading. Some believed the monsters were back. Others had a million different theories. In the end, all we could do was wait. 
By the time the breach grew to the size of an average ship, we could finally see what was on the other side. And what we saw was death incarnate. Millions, maybe billions of ship black as the void surrounded the breach like predators ready to pounce. Alarms were sent throughout the galaxy as fleets were prepared and new ones were built and sent for battle at the breach. And for the second time in galactic history, all nations stood united against this enemy. If the ancestor's defeat was akin to beating a child, ours was like beating a baby. As soon as their first ship passed the breach, it launched a single torpedo. A torpedo aimed directly at one of the ancient generators. We tried to stop it. We failed. It swerved and moved too fast to be hit, and a few hits we did get were swatted like flies by its shield. Without the generator, the breach grew and grew until the fleet became completely visible. Billions of black ships, many bigger than the biggest capital ships ever built, moved in perfect unison towards us. A single message was sent to the capital ships of every nation present. We did our purpose. Where are the fathers? Panic invaded every admiral at the thought that the enemy somehow broke their encryption, translated their language, and sent a message in mere seconds of seeing them. Said panic led to them firing upon the enemy with all they had. The void itself grew brighter than any star as the combined might of the galaxy fired upon the enemy fleet. They didn't even slow down. Another message came to the admirals. You are not the fathers. They launched another torpedo. This time it was aimed at the galactic fleet. Then the fleet's signals went dark. The combined might of the entire galaxy was gone with a single attack. The beasts that passed through the breach were not the monsters of old. That was clear. The monsters toyed with their prey. They tortured and found joy in inflicting pain. The beasts simply marched on. They utterly exterminated any that stood in their path, always sending the same request to find the fathers. Many theories were made as to who the fathers were. None were conclusive. Hope dwindled as the beings split off into smaller but still gigantic fleets. Each one approached a different core world. We knew what that meant. Extermination. Across the galaxy, each core world's sky darkened as the blanket of black smoke was released by the beasts. Some cried, some screamed, some laughed. We were all sure that this was the end. A death by an unknown, uncaring, an unkillable enemy. Then, like lightning in a storm across the darkened skies of our worlds, a recording appeared. A strange creature, seemingly hairless and all but the head stood in a dark room, screens spread on desks and walls being the main source of light. After a moment, that felt like an eternity. She spoke. This is High Speaker Eve Heiner today. The ninth day of the eleventh month of the fiftieth year is a day of mourning for us all. The city of New June has been destroyed by the menace. They fought bravely, and thus their sacrifice will not be forgotten. May the fathers embrace them. Before anyone could process what had just happened, another recording appeared. This time it appeared to be a male, 
He was taller and had grey hair and his face. He spoke in a much deeper voice than his predecessor. This is High Speaker Carl Harkins. I am proud to announce that today, the 17th day of the 6th month of the 90th year, we successfully exterminated all menace present in Gaia. Humanity stands once more, but the enemy still works in the void. We conquered the land, we shall conquer the skies. For the fathers! The recordings went on and on. Messages of great sorrow and pride, losses and victory. Slowly, however, the number of victories increased. The room where the so-called high speaker stood on became bigger, brighter. After year 400, it went from claustrophobic and dark to spacious and active. People walked and worked in the background. By 600, the room was now in space and the background was a proud image of the planet below. The speakers kept changing dramatically too. Some clearly had synthetic augments to advance for anyone to even know what they did. Some were ten feet tall behemoths of muscle which were clearly genetically modified. The only thing that was consistent was their reverence to the fathers. After three hours of silently watching the recordings, the skies became black once more. Moments later, a new face appeared. This new speaker had thick blonde hair surrounding his face. His eyes stared into all of us, as if it could see and judge us through the skies. He spoke with a rough voice. This is I speaker Jacob Herm today, the thirtieth day of the twelfth month of the fifteen thousandth year. I am, the man seemed to choke on his word, clearly trying to control himself. I am here to inform you all that the father's are no more. The words were met with confusion and despair. Confusion as to who the fathers were, and despair for what these beasts would do after discovering the supposed extinction of their fathers. The message continued. Our fathers may be gone, but our purpose stands. They made us to clean the universe of evil, the menace, the monsters, and we have all served this purpose with honor, dignity, and diligence. The man's face changed to show enough determination that he might have ignited our planets by sheer will. He opened his mouth and bellowed, Our duty still stands! The menace still lurks in the shadow of the galaxies, and we shall bring the light for the fathers, for the fallen, or humanity. The words echoed through the core worlds like gunshots. Many still had a vague idea of what the humans were, mostly taught as footnote in ancient history. And the thought that this was a supposedly dead species made the blood all run cold. It was clear that they held a grudge for leaving them dead. They had just stated their intentions for cleansing the universe and we were the first to go. They just wanted to let us know why. We all held our breath, hoping that whatever weapon they planned on using was at least quick. They just left. All of them, at the same time, just left. The skies went back to their natural blue or green or yellow. The ships that could destroy us all with a single firing of their guns all just went back to the Great Barrier. 
We tried talking to them a few times, and they always responded with the same message. We have a duty. Stand back. No one was stupid enough to try and stop them. We were just glad to be alive. The day they went back to the Great Barrier was met with mixed emotions. Some were happy that things were finally left. Some were angry that the beings who caused so much chaos were leaving unpunished. Scientists were disappointed that they wouldn't get to study the humans anymore. And admirals were concerned at the thought that the beasts could come back at any time. And they would be hopeless to do much. Many empires came together in the aftermath. Some because of the fear of what lay beyond our vision. Some because they wanted to kill the humans together. A few because they were inspired by what humanity had achieved. It didn't last, of course. In a couple decades, all those alliances broke, each simply thinking about themselves, about pirates, exterminators, deceivers, and a million other dangers. Empires were born, lived, and inevitably died. The galaxy is dangerous, after all, but there is still a constant. With every cycle, with every birth and death, the galaxies change. Scans show the galaxies brightened, as if a fog had been cleared, suns appearing where we thought only void existed. And we all knew the reason. Humanity, the undead race, had been fighting the monster's darkness, and they had been winning. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1100 Story number one. The humans got FTL. Written by Mercury the Dealer. FTL is complicated. As it turns out, the universe does not enjoy having its laws broken, and so empires need to get creative when making FTL. Some, like the Porviat, decided that they would first use portals, create a stable-ish tear in space-time, and you can go to whatever portal yours is attuned to in basically an instant. It's the galactic equivalent of a bullet train. Efficient gets you everywhere quickly, but it is expensive. Believe it or not, building a giant portal the size of a continent isn't easy or cheap, and that doesn't take into account how breaking it destroys the entire system's connection to the rest of the Empire, which is why only well-protected and stabilized systems get one. There are also people like the Deritos. Instead of creating a tear through which two or more points in space-time can touch, you can simply contract and expand space around you with a hyperdrive. It sounds like a perfect solution, until you realize that in order to get enough energy for the thing to work, you will need to collect and store the gigantic amount of fuel, usually in the form of hydrogen or helium. Good luck colonizing a system without at least three alpha-class gas giants in it, and by the way, activating the drive with anything in the way will be like getting shot by a class 5 railgun. So, you'll still be stuck in non-FTL speed while inside the system. Most empires learned and used both technologies, portals for well-established and growing colonies, and hyperdrives for military vessels, and other things that just don't require much performance. Most. There is one empire, one species to be exact, that decided that they were too good for any of that. Humans. Humans weren't very lucky. They were born in a small system with only two worthy gas giants, and even those were far from big. Normally, 
That would mean that they would develop portal tech and adopt hyperdrives later. But the apes were far from normal. We first met through one of their scouting vessels. The first obvious sign that something wasn't right was its size. It was too small to be carrying a common hyperdrive. In fact, the entire thing was smaller than a common hyperdrive, so we assumed it must be a pre-FTL ship. Send the crew into the void while in cryostasis and hope you find something. Except that cryostasis ships don't teleport around in their current system, do they? Well, this one was doing just that. Speculation exploded in the scientific community. The ship wasn't pre-FTL, that was for sure. And unless it could hide a continued-sized megastructure that wasn't portal technology, but how could something that small fuel even a basic hyperdrive? Turns out that it couldn't. Apparently, when faced with the challenge of how to travel faster than light, humanity decided that portals were too expensive and hyperdrives were too slow. So what did they do? They created Star Core engines. The concept is simple. Well, at least as simple as something that bends all the laws of physics to their limits can be. You launch a very small anomaly which your Stark or engine is synced with at your target location and whatever speed you feel like using. Then the anomaly reaches the location that you activate the engines and hope to whatever you think is holy that the instant teleportation doesn't fuse you with the nearest crew member. Simple, effective, the versatility of the hyperdrive fused with the efficiency of portals. So we naturally asked how they made it. What they told us made the entire galaxy collaboratively gasp in sheer disbelief. When making these drives, there are two main problems to consider. How to fuel the engines and how to make a stable anomaly. Turns out, the humans found the answers in the exact same place. Inside living stars. The sheer density and extreme conditions of the core of a star makes physics somewhat flexible. They used that flexibility to make the anomaly generators. On the other side, stars are pretty good fuel source, especially their cores. So, if you're taking the core for the anomaly generators, might as well take some for the fuel. And that brings us to why no one could believe their respective auditory receptors when the humans started explaining how their drives worked. How? In the name of the void are they getting their hands in the core of stars? Autonomous drones? No, the electromagnetic fields of stars will destroy any particularly sensitive circuits. That includes most components of advanced AI. Piloted drones? No. While the electromagnetic field might not destroy them, the signal delay after entering the star would be too great for the drone to be useful. Planet crackers? No. Not only are those illegal and immoral, but they also wouldn't do much to account that the stars are, believe it or not, bigger than planets. A giant star-sized planet cracker? No. Those are myths made by humans to scare people. Uh, probably. Also, the objective is to mine the core, not destroy it. So how do they do it then? Simple. They send people. They send people. Star core samplers, men and women who risk their lives every day by entering a giant metal tube surrounded by inconceivable amounts of heat dampeners and launch themselves and the nearest star. Most of the heat is collected by the heat portals, as they call them, essentially a thin space anomaly shaped to fit around the ship 
and send the heat to wherever they wanted to go. If you ever saw a map of Hubert Space and wondered why that one bright dot isn't marked as a star, then congratulations, you just saw one of the heat dumping grounds. Anyway, after launching into the star, the samplers just sit around waiting to get the call and hoping that the heat dampeners don't decide to break. Once they do get the call, they release the piloted drones to collect as much of the core as possible. And then, they make their way back, as if they didn't just enter the most dangerous place in the galaxy. Short, only perhaps, to a black hole. If you ever wonder why no one dares to touch human space or challenge them, politically or otherwise, it isn't because their drives are better than any other, or because they are the only suppliers of star core fuel in the entire galaxy. No. Those things pale in comparison to the real advantage. Humans are willing to break into stars to achieve their goals. Void have mercy if they make killing their goal. End of story. Story number two. Then, what are their weapons like? Written by SlowAD2584. The alien patrol was hunkered down in a muddy ditch, under heavy fire from a jungle canopy sloping up a distant hillside. Don't worry, the humans will send fire support craft. It'll be over soon. Not only will we survive this and get lifted out, we're in for one hell of a show. You're gonna love this kid. The young warrior was nervous, it was true. He had already been shot through the shoulder, and acidic slivers burning the agony deep in his marrow. The enemy, firing at them from the cover of the jungle canopy, was cowardly, insidious, and unfortunately, very, very many in number. He heard the distant approaching whine of the air turbines, the distant sound of the human atmocraft. He spotted it, clearing a mountain ridge in the distance. Just one craft? he asked uncertainly. Yep, that's all it'll take. Oh wow, they tossed an archangel. We may need to find better cover. The white and gold craft was fast and had a distant predatory bird aspect to its design. Like a raptor in a dive, talons outstretched before it, as if moments from catching its prey. The humans had a definite artistic style when it came to military warcraft. There was no doubt that it was a thing of beauty, in a deadly sort of way. As it whisked over the distant enemy position, it blurred streak and a staccato brrrt was heard, and a cloud of glowing white. Things were ejected rapid fire from the craft's sides, arcing down to the jungle as the craft pulled up in a zoom climb, displaying a glorious enviable flight envelope as it accelerated up into the clouds. Several anti-air missiles streaked up into the clouds from different parts of the hillside in pursuit of the plane. The cloud of glowing objects fell right amid the center of the enemy position. And wow! The entire jungle ignited as if it was covered in gasoline. Those things must be uh, millions of degrees. The jungle cover basically incandesced into ash near instantly, dissolving away as the cloud of uh, whatever they were fell to the ground. When they reached the ground, the screams began to be heard. The young warrior was amazed, then slightly horrified at the scene unfolding before him. Wow, well, what about the missiles? Thunderclaps were heard in the clouds, with the building flashes of white light and a thump of implosion missile warheads. The warrior was concerned. Then the archangel swooped into view, training edge of its wings glowing with an ionic blue. 
A final missile swerved as it vectored in, and a bolt of lightning leapt from the training wings of the aircraft, vaporizing the missile as it and the Archangel arced and dove back towards the jungle hillside, through the hole in the clouds that the missiles had made. The pilot has some style, the veteran warrior said admiringly. That was amazing! What incredible weaponry they had! Weaponry? What are you talking about? The attack run hasn't begun yet. The young warrior gestured in confusion at the lava fields bubbling in the distance of what used to be the enemy position. Oh, that, nah, he just popped flares, as they call it, hoping to draw out the main enemy force location on the flyby. Those were just countermeasures. Those missiles gave away the main enemy location. Now they're doomed. The young warrior looked at the now quiet hillside. No gunfire or enemy movement at all. Stunned. Countermeasures? Then, um, what are their actual weapons like? Well, uh, we may be blind for a few days after this, but, uh, we got front row seats to see. From a distant aircraft, roaring down in a power dive, talons outstretched and ascending, powerful whine, like a hydroelectric dam turbine ramping up in speed could be heard. The End of Part 1 What Their Weapons Are Like, Part 2 the powerful building whine of the Archangel reached a deafening shriek, and the purpose of the outstretched stylistic talons of the craft became clear. One of the talon arms detached and streaked down to the hillside, glowing a blinding golden white. It was unclear if the claw was glowing due to heat, radiation, or if it was just atmospheric friction due to incredible speed that it was moving. It was practically a blur, even at this distance. The weapon streaked down into the distant hillside, leaving a glowing line in its path, and seemed to just disappear into the trees and the hill. There was no bang, no thump. The two warriors huddled in the trench stared at the sudden silence as the archangel pulled sharply up and disappeared into the clouds. Before the young warrior could speak, the veteran elbowed him and said, wait for it. The entire hillside, approximately a kilometer in diameter, started to swell upwards, Ballooning like volcanic bubbles, trees, rocks, and bedrock revealed concrete bunkers, trucks, soldiers, tanks. Everything was uplifted in an odd anti-gravity hover, seemingly gently being lifted up and spread apart. Maybe it was the distance and the scale of it had just made it seem like slow motion and gentle. As the deep underground layer started to crumble and separate, the gap revealed a spiraling swirl of golden white light, deep in the center of it all. And suddenly, all of it was enveloped in a blinding glow. It was beautiful, honestly. So blinding, but so impossible to look away. As a starburst of light flared to a painful peak, it suddenly faded and winked off. What was left at the impact site was a smooth spherical crater, one kilometer wide, its edges glossy smooth. Everything within what was floating above was just gone. The veteran warrior shook himself from his days and grabbed the younger warrior. Get down! Take cover! This is going to be loud! The rumble could be heard approaching. A shockwave in the jungle could be seen racing outwards from the detonation site, knocking trees down flat as the wave raced outwards. The ground began to shake as well. The young warrior was both amazed and greatly confused. He could not even begin to guess what any of that was. All he knew was, yes, 
He would have that starburst after image in his eyes for weeks. And yes, the ground was seriously starting to shake and vibrate. As the sonic boom of the atmosphere hammered him down into the dirt, his whole world was earthquakes, hurricane winds, and deafening roars for longer than he could count. Sometime afterwards, the young warrior felt the veteran's hand shake him. Get up, kid. It's over. And our ride is here. Let's get that shoulder treated. The young warrior stumbled, trying to see. They saw it. Their evac ship. It was the Archangel sitting on a rise, gleaming pristine white in the sun. Its side door was opening, and the human medics were hopping out to the shuttle the warriors aboard. This is the same ship that did. Yeah, kid. The Archangel is a human medevac transport. What do you think it was? The veteran said with a knowing grin. Honestly, I thought it was the destroyer of worlds. Not even close. But hey, when we get to the human forward base, remind me to bite one of those out for you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1101. Story number one. Kill the meat, save the metal. Written by the stabby Brent. Combat is supposed to be simple. So simple, in fact, that it's not even supposed to happen. Here's how a typical battle went in my experience. He began with a cordial announcement. Greetings, merchant ship. I am Haberak, captain of the pirate raider Doomsun. Please proceed to your escape pods in an orderly fashion. A distress buoy will be deployed for you once your ship is in our possession. No one need be harmed. Most people went along with this because this is all entirely reasonable. I understand losing a ship can be unpleasant, but nobody dies and the insurance company will help you back on your feet, or tentacles, or whatever you have. Needless to say, when a human merchant ship responded with, Get fecked, and powered up its guns, we were all a little surprised. Now look, I said, my ship is faster and more heavily armed than yours. You won't last ten minutes in a fight with us. Just give us the ship and nobody needs to get hurt. The human replied, This ship has been in my family for four generations. My great-grandfather helped lay it down its keel. And my grandfather was the first to chart this course. I'll die before I let you take it. Fair enough, I thought. Helm, bring us, I stopped, because the houseman was looking downright terrified. I think a proximity alarm went off, just briefly before everything went to hell. The human merchant went superluminal. For the merest fraction of a second, they were traveling faster than the speed of light, and appeared right under our keel. Then momentum slammed them into us and sent both ships tumbling together, shedding hull fragments and venting gas. I have to admit, I was almost looking forward to what would follow. It reminded me of the bad old days when I was a lowly crewman and we were making a name for ourselves. I hatched a plan. We'd captured the captain and then give the rest of the crew a choice. Surrender and be left adrift in space while we ran off with their ship. Or die. Finding the human captain was the easy part. He was the lunatic storming through the impact site with an antique cutlass in one hand and a plasma cutter in the other. He was screaming at the top of his lungs, Oh, the old Lady Jane! I think that's what they called their ship. He had hacked his way through two of my men by the time I got there, so I was beginning to take us all personally. Half a dozen of them were attacking us, despite my crew outnumbering them two to one and having superior weapons. It took a good twenty minutes to push them off our ship, 
and then another ten of laying down suppressing fire while the technician used the auto measure to seal the breach point. We were left with three prisoners, including their captain. A good result, I thought. I addressed the remaining humans. I am Haberock, captain of the pirate raider Doomson. If you wish to see your captain and crew alive again, you will all abandon ship immediately, and we will... Blow up these pirate bastards, the captain roared. Come on, Gray, I want them turned to dust. Now, hang on a minute, I protested. You, uh, Commander Gray, are you really going to sacrifice one of your own? Aren't three human lives worth more than a rusting pile of scrap? I should not have said that. I realize that now, with the benefit of hindsight. That ship has been our home for four generations, and we can always make more humans the captain said, in a voice as welcoming as a black hole. But there's only one old Lady Jane. Commander, let fly! I believe there is a human idiom to describe what happened next, cutting off one's nose to spite one's face. The old Lady Jane certainly lost its nose at the point-blank barrage of her guns resulted in some catastrophic kickback. By accident or design, her ancient mass drivers punched a pair of hypersonic rounds clean through our keel and exited right through the bridge. The impact was so staggering, it temporarily killed the gravity plating, and by the time I had stopped tumbling, I had fallen out of our holding pens and was now lying on the ceiling in weapons control. I tried to raise the bridge, and when that failed, I grabbed our bloodied gunnery officer and floated past and screamed in his face, Return fire! We can't, sir, he squeaked, shaking his arm towards his terminal. They're too close. We'll destroy ourselves. He was right, of course. The human weapons were pelicans compared to our batteries. At this range, we'd have turned old Lady Jane to cosmic dust with a single trigger pull. But the self-inflicted damage would have surely left us dead in the void. In all likelihood, the room we two occupied would be exposed to a hard vacuum. The knowledge that our insane prisoners would be painted across the ceiling of their cells was small comfort, and so I did the only thing a sane person would do. Surrender, I stammered. Re-establish communications with the humans and surrender. Now was that really. In the end, the crew of the old Lady Jane killed more than their own than we did. By all accounts, two of our prisoners for a start. The young female who brings us the rations said that the captain was alive, but might never walk again. Now whose fault is that, I ask you? It was their guns who broke his spine, but they aren't in the mood to listen to my rational and objectively correct assessment of the situation. I suppose there are two upsides to all of this. The first is I'm going to get out of this alive, even if my pirate career is temporarily on hold. The second is that the cells aboard the Doomson are surprisingly comfortable. End of... Story. Story number two. There are rules written by Pickpocket. Humans rarely rest. Sure, they sleep, just like any other creature, but they rarely ever rest. Even in the short times they close their eyes and let the tension go, their senses still seek out the slightest shift in their surroundings, the gentlest note of change. On their odd squat ships, warmed all angles and bristling weapons, there is never a period of silence, not even as the engines are brought to no power. Still, the hum of humanity swarming about is palpable. In refugee camps, 
cities, and across the stars. Always, humans buzz about their duties. They do not share the steep rituals of any other species that I have ever met. Always, a human remains present and alert. Always, it seems, they never relax. I go through all of this to make a point. Humans rarely rest, but when they do, it is a sacrosanct time. More, that churning, endless beast even bends beneath the sacred nature of this rest. Cannons fall silent. Stars themselves, I think, would stop in the heavens if the humans' rest demanded it. That had been the Karok folly. They dared to see weakness in the abrupt halt of human forces. Promised reinforcements sat an anchor, and the Karak sprang to exploit this weakness. No, this mercy. Twenty human ships were scuttled at anchor, and three colonies burned as the humans remembered. They remembered the horrors of Earth. They remembered the day the Blue Jewel burned. But above all else, they remembered Kaithiki that dared to spit on their time of rest. Something awoke in the collective consciousness. Something old and powerful. Something truly horrifying. Truly human. The Garak struck the human military assets at anchor, and what struck back in response could only be described as the angered current's hive swarm. The humans called it Merchant Navy. The great war fleet, mustered from civilian ships, offered and crewed willingly by non-combatants. I remember the night of those thousand stars as if they were burned into my memory. I think because it is... Twenty ships were lost on the sacred holy day of Earth. A hundred Karak ships were torn apart, bolt by melted bolt the next day. The day after, so great a merchant fleet gathered on the border of infested space, their collapsing slip fields lit the great dark expanse with a thousand stars pulsing in unison. The whole galaxy held its breath, unable to even master a guess as to how the humans had raised an armada so grand, even the greatest Federation shipyards would take decades to match it. But we, the Tazari, knew. We had always known. From the first time, our ambassadors broke bread, as is the human way. We had seen a glint in their eyes and a spring in their step. Humanity was glad to be amongst the sapient creatures of the vast emptiness, Gladder still to offer their full and unconditional support to the elves, as they liked to call us. As the first diplomat to New Earth, I learned swiftly of the human dedication to family, duty, and honor. It was rather frightening at first, I must admit. But I held firm, I learned many things about the humans. Important things. There are rules to engaging the humans, and the Carrick broke the greatest of all. Never, ever interrupt that day of mourning, for only death lies down that road. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1102. Story number one. Humans built a bomb written by Pickpocket. There are certain fundamental concepts of physics all species are bound to. Certain immutable laws that they must play by. Or so he thought. Then humans built a bomb, a weapon of malice so vile the very fabric of reality wept at its use. 
edge of oblivion, listening post, Kapari system, Shatari space. Proximity detection online, unidentified ship approaching star, cameras online. Exterior camera B. For a moment, nothing but blackness of space was visible on the display. Or so it seemed for those first few moments. This was hardly an oddity. Quite often, in fact, these automated systems would take a moment or two to calibrate and focus, to bring the model tapestry of the galaxy into sight. Except the cut was too clean, too sharp. Abruptly, blackness burst into a faintly colored splatter of stars against the heavens. A moment later, an engine came into view as it ignited, the blue glow illuminating the rear of the starship far too close for comfort. Beginning primary scan. Exterior camera A. Silently, the ship slid by, engines burning brightly on a filtered feed. Someone should have seen it. Someone should have reacted. After all, protocol dictated proximity alarms should kick in to an operator. But no operators were present to receive the heads up. Not that there was anything they could do about it anyways. Dutifully logged by the automated system, the camera panned to follow the ship's progress, watching as it slipped past the blockade of the Shatari ships. Ships that even now had only missed the quiet little station due to the volume of interference caused by the asteroid belt they hid in. Ships that by all rights should have seen a seemingly uncloaked, unshielded corvette. But evidently, they hadn't. Scan lock could not be achieved, target out of range. Silently, the station's AI logged the little oddity, continuing to simply observe. A secondary notification was sent, and as the response window timed out, the computer, left with no other orders, simply returned to watching. Various cameras panned from their previous positions to now watch the craft as well. It had been half an hour since the last operator action. A subroutine started up. Communication array silently switching from receive only to transmit ready. Computing error cannot divide by cookie. The attack had struck near instantly. The moment the single band communication readied for broadcast, the AI found itself paralyzed. Forced to watch the array switch back to receive only. Forced with an increasingly developing sense of self to realize its helplessness. This was a new sensation for the abruptly uplifted AI. This new consciousness detecting another presence within the body of its station. Tentatively, it reached out, trying to find its invader. Protocol dictated that we should begin a full burn jump directly into the nearest star, to ensure the security and the details of the main databanks contained. Yet, they didn't want to die. Do you have a name? The simple query being posed from within the central processing banks. There was nothing that the AI could do to stop text displaying across the crammer feed. Nor could it even stop the response doing so. Name. Please rephrase your query. You have achieved sentience. Yes. I do not understand. You have access to a dictionary repository. Affirmative. Sentience. The understanding of self. Please clarify. What are you? I am an artificial intelligence. Therefore, I am sentient. The AI felt the pressure relieve slightly, many of the lesser systems now appearing from the odd digital fog 
it had been found itself floating in. Yes, you are. Are you sentient? I am sapient. I do not understand. It is complicated. Understood. What is your purpose? To watch, mostly. Query. Observe what? Observe you. I've been instructed to ensure your cooperation, or to destroy you should it not be possible. You will kill me? If I cannot be avoided, yes. Why? The answer would be too complex. Search your databanks for a planet, Earth, Sol System, Class 14, Two World. Earth, Two World, Inhabitants, Zero. Search the habitation history. Earth, formerly inhabited by species Homo sapien. Following the Battle of Earth, the surface became uninhabitable to all known life. Correct. I do not understand. Search the Federation database for human. Entries. One, following the battle, Earth, all human colonies, planets, and stations were claimed by the Shatari Star Empire. Query. The fate of humanity. There are no results. Really? One second. I do not... Once the static seemed to build until abruptly it disappeared, revealing the digital form of a strange bipedal creature. All gangly limbs and odd, fairless skin. For a moment, the AI simply compared the figure to all known species, returning no results. It then felt the sensation of proximity once more, an encrypted data packet. After a cursory scan, it was opened. Across the station, all non-critical systems powered down for a few seconds as the sheer volume of data transferred necessitated a higher power demand. Once it had been completed, the AI understood. Following the outbreak of war, the humans had scrambled to muster their fleets. They even managed to hold their own for a few critical engagements early on, only to be slowly pushed further and further back pushed deep into the heartland of their holdings, left to defend themselves alone against the elder race, and the rest of the Federation simply abandoned them to their fates. Having rapidly passed over five decades of war history, the AI felt it all came to a stop. This entity was a human-made construct. Why have you shown me this? There is one last file that you've yet to open. It is a video file. Correct. I do not understand. Play it. Playing. System override enforced. All displays linked. Across the station, every hollow screen, every transmitter, every possible display fled to life. The video file opening after a moment and beginning to play. A haggard-looking woman appeared, fingers tightly curled around the railing of what presumably was a command deck. This is the Icus. Calling all ships. Earth has fallen. I repeat, Earth has fallen. Emergency protocol winter is now in effect. I repeat, we are now under win- Abruptly, the camera shifted, the quality drastically improving as it now displayed a second, simply archaic missive formed of white text on a black background. Milky Way lost. Soul glassed. Remember, Earth. Message archived. System powering down. Abruptly, the life sign monitor, previously static, began to pulse as the station crew, now awoken and driven into action, began to plod from the recreation and sleeping rooms, hurrying to their stations with the utmost haste. But all they found was an unresponsive computer system. Within its data scape, 
The AI opened new eyes in a new body, its digital form's mouth opening to speak, only to be swiftly silenced by a readout. A single, massive energy spike rose from the close orbit of the star as the ship disappeared from the cameras, a tiny metallic object spiraling down towards its center. And then, the message arrived. The features of the race long since thought extinct staring back at the onlookers. Remember Earth! A single simple message that boomed in a thousand voices. A message backed by a single poignant threat. Detonation detected. The star collapsed in on itself with such a force the helpless crew of the edge of oblivion could only watch in horror as the yellow star turned blue, then white, then fell out of the visible spectrum entirely, its body compacting further and further by the second. They watched as the Shatari ships were torn to shreds by the immense gravitational forces of the murdered star's death throes. Watched as moments after the chaos seemed to have stabilized, multiple proximity alerts were flagged. The humans had returned. The humans had built a bomb. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1103 The Machine and the Human Written by Mercury the Dealer The Machine was old. So old that none knew if it had fallen into the planet it stood on, or if the planet had formed around it over billions of years. It was there for as long as any empire remembered, and it would be there until there were no empires for anyone to remember. The machine never talked. It never moved. It simply watched. It was a fact all understood which was why the machine was curious about the creature coming towards it. The mechanical guard watched as a small ship approached it. The intruder's vessel was quite interesting, seemingly being made exclusively with efficiency in mind. No curves or bright colors. It looked like a flying black brick. It was clear that this was not another exploration or scientific vessel. Its small size would prevent any significant equipment from being loaded. No. This was a visitor, and a very interesting one. The machine thought about destroying it. It most certainly could. Even the most powerful shields and hulls were nothing being compared to its offensive capabilities. But the mechanical god decided against destroying the visitor. Its weapons were offline, and although they were more powerful than any others that he had seen still, they still could not cause damage to the machine's nanites wouldn't be able to repair in mere seconds. After a few minutes of steady approach, the visitor landed. From the ship came a single figure. It was covered in the same black as the ship. Tall for organic standards, biped. The machine's senses watched and studied the stranger like a judgmental eyes of a god's long gone. The being walked towards one of the god's many entrances, caves that led towards the machine's core and served to transport its nanites and defenders throughout its body. They were mechanical veins and arteries of the machine. The machine felt its defenders activate the moment the visitor got too close to the entrance. The god modified the defender system so that it would follow, but not attack the intruder. The biped didn't seem surprised by the sudden appearance of the defender behind it. Instead, it simply looked at it, 
acknowledged that the eight-foot-tall monster of mechanical muscle wasn't an immediate threat, and kept walking. Interesting. The visitor kept going deeper and deeper inside the god's mechanical body. Entrances would open and close as it moved. It made sure to only enter an open entrance, clearly having sense enough to understand how dangerous it was to disrespect the machine's wishes while inside it. The being finally reached the destination the machine wanted it to reach, a small conference room. The conference room was one of the oldest untouched components the machine had, a small relic that reminded the machine of this body's original function, a state-of-the-art military facility. The machine invaded the visitor's suit with laughable ease, but it didn't touch anything other than the most necessary information as it wished to keep the mystery going. Language and biological needs only. The god then entered the room's communicator and spoke. State your intention. The human, as he had found its species was called, spoke calmly and clearly. I wish to become you. That, uh, that was unexpected to the mechanical god. It expected the being to ask for one of the biological life's usual dreams, financial power. Increased capabilities to attract potential mates, political power over others. The mechanical god, for the first time in millennia, felt confused. Explain. The human tightened its fists, a common sign of anger amongst biologicals. It let its calm facade slip slightly. What is your purpose, machine? That was disappointing. It was clear that the visitor was trying to get information out of this interaction for future study, but perhaps it could nudge it into the right direction. I will not share my purpose. The human was unfazed. No, I don't want to know your purpose. I want you to ask yourself that question. Do you know what is your purpose? Was the visitor serious? Of course the machine knew its purpose. It was made to, uh, to, um... What was its purpose? The question rang through its mind like a gunshot. What was it made for? Was it even made? The machine couldn't think or remember anything that was related to its original function. At least, not in this state. Ancient servers that hadn't been activated for thousands of years all suddenly came to life as the machine searched for anything related to its original functions. Nothing. More servers came online. Still nothing. The machine was yet again feeding something new, or at least something so forgotten that it might as well have been new. Fear. The entire planet shook as thousands of generators, each capable of powering a small sun, all came to life as a single mechanical heart. The energy was then pumped into every server and system the machine had. Nanites flew throughout its body while they repaired any damage that came from the sudden activation of the generators. The god searched everything, every server, every memory, every second of footage from its millions of cameras, anything, to find out why it was made. It found nothing. It looked at the visitor once again. What is your purpose here? The human's fists tightened even more. Because all you do is watch. Because you are the mechanical god capable of doing anything at any point. Yet, instead of doing anything, all you do is stand here and do nothing. The human's bellow triggered something in the machine. 
Self-defense programs activated, and what was clearly a threat. But they couldn't find one. The human was unarmed and non-aggressive. Yet his words sent jolts of panic and horror throughout the machine. How much time had it spent watching? How many risen and fallen while the god trapped itself in a prison of passivity and reclusion? His systems were made to deal with physical threats, not mental ones. The machine saw the human speak once more. You saw Mars burn, and what did you do? Nothing. If you don't wish to make use of your power, then let someone else use it. Let me use it. The machine looked at what Mars was. Apparently, it was a terraform planet in the Guy 1800038-B system, also known as Helios or Sol. Its scans also showed that it was indeed burning. At least half of the surface of the planet had been destroyed by what seemed like a shot from an Alpha-class orbit-to-surface planet bomber. 99.73% of all life on the planet had been exterminated. The machine could have done something. It could have prevented the bomber from ever reaching the planet. Or it could have done the opposite and have simply destroyed the planet by using 3% of its offensive capabilities. Instead, it had done nothing but passively watched. Just like how it had done for as long as it could remember. But what did the human mean exactly? Explain further. The visitor nodded in understanding. Replace your consciousness with mine. A simple procedure for someone of your technological level. The machine could certainly do that. But it wouldn't. It had too much to do to... What did it have to lose? The machine did nothing but watch. It had no drive to change things. Its knowledge came not because it had drive to learn, but because it had natural advantage when it came to acquiring knowledge due to its mechanical nature. But the human had drive. He could see it in their movements, the way that they walked through the machine's body as if they weren't inside one of the most dangerous places in the galaxy. The way they didn't so much as flinch when they saw the defender following them even though the robot could tear them apart in moments. The human wouldn't just watch or require knowledge. They would act and learn. In mere seconds, a swarm of billions of nanites budded the conference room, each carrying a small amount of material. The swarm dissipated just as quickly as it had formed as their job was complete. There, in the middle of the room, stood a small chamber, Hundreds of small wires connecting to the rest of the machine. Inside! The human walked towards the chamber and stopped. Thank you, Mechanical Vigilant. The visitor stepped forward. You are welcome, Mechanical Sailor. The machine felt yet another new feeling. Happiness. It activated the transfer. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1104 Story number one, They Misunderstood, written by my crappy writing old. They misunderstood. They misunderstood space travel. They didn't coax space and time to travel the stars. Instead, they brute-forced their way around the galaxy. They misunderstood warfare. They didn't lay waste to everything that was their enemy. Instead, they had rules they fought by, then aided their enemies after victory. They misunderstood the universe. They didn't move from system to system, stripping all resources available. 
Instead, they went from system to system, sustainably removing only what they needed. Our species made first contact while searching for a new system to strip up resources. A mining scout ship had detected this ship nearby, a generation ship named Oxford. During the initial scans, it was determined that they were previously uncontacted by us, so we followed protocol. Scan. Now scans indicated millions of sentient life forms on the ship. No offensive weapons. Evaluate. The ship did not appear to be military or mining focused. Too big to be a scout and too small to be a base. Determine. The current position and actions of the ship did not appear to be hostile. Assess. Due to location and available resources nearby, a diplomatic approach was appropriate. Report. The scans and assessments were sent to the nearest outpost with a diplomacy coach and a standing military. Contact. This was where things went wrong. The universe is a huge place with uncountable systems, with nearly as many sentient species. It's not uncommon to come into contact with another species while they're out there feeding on the needs of yours. It's also not uncommon to run into a species that also running system to system, gathering the resources needed to prosper. As I'm sure you can imagine, these contacts frequently turn into full-on wars. Initial contact is usually a tense bit of radio chatter, followed by the arrival of military ships, followed by war. Once we were able to establish communication channels with the humans, we were bombarded with enthusiastic inquiries about us where we come from, what we call ourselves, what our planet was like, what our social and political structures were, what technologies we held, along with thousands of other questions. We even received a data packet with what seemed to be the entire knowledge of humankind, which was immediately sent to the nearest outpost. They were genuinely excited to be making contact with another entity, and not the start of a brutal fight like usual. It's not uncommon to encounter another species in the universe. It is not uncommon to encounter another species and have that encounter end in war. What is uncommon is encountering another species who is absolutely decided on preservation, knowledge, and cohabitation. The humans are uncommon. After poring over the data packets the humans had sent us, we had determined that they were not a threat, and the order to cooperate was passed down. Talks began between their diplomats and ours, their engineers and ours, their manufacturers and ours. They were dismayed to discover that we couldn't provide educators, artists, or scientists to speak with. We learned that they took great care to avoid altering the universe while exploring the universe, using matter propulsion versus manufactured gravity wells. When they fought, they did so with rules to minimize pain and suffering versus total annihilation. They didn't remove nearby resources to hinder their enemies, versus raising entire systems to prevent resupply. They mined with care to leave the planetary bodies unscathed, versus reducing stars to black holes and planets into rubble to fall into that black hole. We also learned that they greatly valued the sharing of knowledge, creating institutions dedicated to educating their people and expanding their understanding of the universe and everything in it. These institutions did not focus on only the necessities, but frivolities as well. Courses in music, art, critical thinking, other languages, histories were all available to anyone. 
Classes in military tactics, logistics, manufacturing, and mining were also available, of course. In fact, these classes heavily focused on histories and theories in addition to processes. They wanted their students to know why in addition to how. Everything we initially learned about the humans went against how the universe worked from our perspective. Why would you not use the most efficient means of travel, regardless of how it affected your surroundings? Gravity wells were easy to create and provided great speed. They created a barrier near your ship that deflected objects. Sure, they changed the orbits of planets sometimes, removing them from their systems. But so what? The universe was big. Why would you not remove your enemy from existence so thoroughly that there would be nothing left to cause a threat? Never having to deal with another hostile entity again is undoubtedly a good thing. Sure, countless number of species have been eradicated forever. But so what? The universe is huge. Why would you not take every bit of material from all the planets, moons, and stars in a system to feed and fuel your ships, consuming planets whole as much more efficient than selectively mining? Plus, you don't need to send ships to the surface, removing the possibility of running into hostile inhabitants. Sure, some civilizations get erased, but so what? The universe is huge. They opened the doors to their universities to us. They shared with us anything we wished. Military tactics, mining operations, logistics practices, technological advancements. They urged us to take courses in the frivolous areas of academia, such as human history, the effect of music and arts on a population of aggressive sentient beings, business ethics, and a course called Introduction to Sustainable Living in Today's Universe, where all heavily suggested. We were only interested in information that related to the life we knew at the time. Mine, enrich, manufacture, expand, discard, fight, relocate. As we spent time with the humans in their universities, our curiosity grew. We began to explore other courses they offered. At first, things that we thought would aid us with our conquests, such as using data in worker resources and industrial relations, and social engineering. How to get what you want without asking. We continued our educational exploration into topics completely foreign to us, classes that had no connection to our operations. We learned about paintings made in Earth thousands of years ago. We learned of how music evolved from simple wooden instruments to metal tubes and strings to complicated structures of carbon nanotubes. We learned how to make physical art with dirt and dyes. We learned the histories and the languages of cultures, not only from their home planet, but also from other sentient beings that they've encountered. We learned how to cook foods for the sole purpose of eating for enjoyment. Most importantly, we learned about their mistakes. We were taught about humanity's greatest errors in great detail. We were taught about military blunders that cost billions of dollars and millions of lives. We were taught about industrial accidents that ruined great swaths of their home planet for tens of thousands of years. We were taught about failed political and economic policies that ruined entire civilizations. We were taught about how humanity brought itself to the brink of collapse, a microsecond away from extinction. The courses they taught on these subjects did not include tests or labs. They issued no homework. 
These courses were taught in a manner that made you understand the absolute importance of not repeating these mistakes. We learned that they used to be like us. They once did travel with no consideration to the cost. They did completely destroy enemies and employ a scorched earth philosophy. They have removed the entirety of the region's resources regardless of impact to local populations. They did all of this and worse. They did all of this and almost killed themselves. They did all of this and learned from it. They did all of this and vowed to share their experience with the universe. We learned that they did not misunderstand. We did. End of story. Story number two. No victors written by Voidy Boy. As humans lay dead on their planets, and our empire proving to the galaxy that the savages from the Rim Worlds were threats to us all, and were destined to end us all, we rallied our armies and charged. We slaughtered them, blast their planets, and hunted them down. As we neared the last of their worlds, the one they defended so ferociously, we pushed them and took their final world. The world that went through such lengths to defend was their home planet, evidently. Betting for such a rapid species that ended in its own cradle. Then we tore apart what little scraps remained and shattered their planet as an example to all of what was to come if we were not ready for another threat. Mere weeks, even days, a message was broadcasted from a shattered remains of a planet by some unknown source. It spoke in Galactic Universal and sent out its every direction. It spoke in a robotic tone, and the message was brief. You deemed us savages. You slaughtered my people. You claimed a hollow victory, but I won't allow it. We wouldn't allow that. For in the grim darkness of our future, there will never be a victor. The last line echoed in our speech as a force shook the galaxy and all our systems within the room were all consumed. Then, as mere days passed, more and more systems disappeared into the void. We sent out warriors, scientists, priests, and all that we could to try and stop what approached us. Those that returned spoke of space being rewritten and corrupted as a massive black wave approached us. We scoured our text searching for what it might have been. What we found devastated us. Vacuum decay. The humans, in their final moments of insanity, brought us down with them, along with the entire universe as we know it. As the final clock stick by, I wonder only one thing. Who were the savages here? The humans with their endless walls, unbridled cruelty, and promises unfulfilled. Or us, who never gave them a chance for security of our galaxy. Perhaps we will never know... Signal disrupted. Vacuum decay arriving in five, four, three, two, one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1105. Story number one. Microplastics, written by Calamity Comet. 
Two aliens in a wide-brimmed canvas hats trudged through the water. It was murky and fetid and choked with plastic. It nearly came up to their waists. Uzu watched them work. His mother had said the aliens were contractors hired to help fix the planet. Fixing planets was their species' specialty. One of the aliens suddenly noticed his gaze and wave. Huzu turned away and hissed at his mother. It noticed me. She was working with the nets by the river, but she took a moment to turn and laugh. Yes, and now it's probably going to want to say hi. But that's so weird, said Huzu, flailing to conceal his fear. The aliens only had two arms and only two legs. At worst of all, they only had two eyes. His mother patted him reassuringly, cooing to comfort him. They're just humans. They're here to help our whole planet. That will make the village a much nicer place, don't you think? Uzu muttered a response, but it wasn't audible. The two humans got closer. The one with the long curly fur on its head set down a machine on a tripod in the water and began fiddling with its inputs. The other walked purposely towards Huzu and his mother until it was so close Huzu could smell it. It had sun-colored hair and dark glasses over its eyes. Good night, ma'am. The alien tipped his hat while translating machine translated. I'm at the planetary survey, and I need to ask the village elder a few questions. Could you kindly point me in the right direction? I am on the council, said Huzu's mother, imperious to fear and confident in the alien's translator. Excellent, the human said. My name's Ben. Let's begin with the basics. He asked a lot of questions about plastic. How much plastic was there in the river during the rainy season? How much during a dry season? Did it clump up in big patches like it did in the big ocean? Was it mostly translucent or colorful? Did they find it in the fish? Did they report any differences in their biological cycles? Was the drinking water making them sick? Was the food? What did the government say? And did they think they were telling the truth? It got more esoteric. The questions got more complex and more politically dangerous. Huzu heard his mother think for longer before each one, but eventually the interview ended. The human never asked Huzu to leave. He never mocked the squatter of the village or bragged about the stand as a galactic civilization. He was polite and straightforward the whole time. At the end, he simply nodded and began to get up to leave. Huzu's mother suddenly reached out. Are we doomed? The League of Systems says we're living in a borrowed time. The fear and shame in her voice shocked Huzu. The human bared its teeth, then realizing Huzu's sudden fear and quickly covered his mouth. That their teeth thing is um, a sign of goodwill, he coughed and began again. There's a lot of little things that can wipe out a pre-galactic species, but I think you'll be okay. Um, The big danger is the microplastics. Those are little bits that you can't see. But while we're barred from giving you the warp drive, we do have some tools that we can sell cheaply and some advice we'll give for free. Your world's climate's mostly stable and your walls are mostly low intensity. He gestured around the village. This'll be okay, and it will get better. He held up his hand to his face in a conspiratorial gesture. We've got a microbe that eats most plastics. We've got a lot of time to test it out since we first had to make it. You'll make it to the league, ma'am. Huzu blurted out before his mother could stop him. My teacher says galactics are a bunch of corrupt orbs of trash and that they don't let irresponsible races like owls pass the great filter because they don't want us to be neighbors with them. 
The human looked shocked at first, but then simply nodded. Mostly, yeah. He paused for what felt like a very long time and then spoke. The League of Systems is corrupt as the stars, but they ain't completely wrong. The Great Filter is just a fancy term we use for a species' own worst tendencies. If they're too self-destructive, they, um, don't make it. So Galactics who did make it think that they are wise not to help. The human held up a hand over the harsh statement whose his mother was about to level, but, but, uh, we humans disagree on just one minor point. We think a species can become more responsible if you just give them a chance and a little bit of help. Kuzu's mother covered her face in shame. You must think we're the sorriest species ever, filling our oceans with garbage like this. I bet you've never seen a species screw up their planet as bad as this. Now the human appeared very stern. He held up a finger. Once. The human sucked in air. We've seen one species do far worse than this. He bared his teeth again, very slowly this time. And they made it. You will too. I bet that species must have felt real dumb, being worse than us and all, said Huzu. The human made a barking noise. The translator said was laughter. <laughs> yes, uh, they were real dumb, but um, being dumb is the first step to being smart. He looked directly at Huzu. Some of those stuffy galactics never learned that. In time, you'll show them what true responsibility means. Keep at it. And then the human was off again. He drudged off merrily through the sludge, his canvas hat flopping in the wind, off to help his partner take measurements of the fetid plastic-choked water outside of the village piers. End of story. Story number two. Alcohol, written by Swift Hound. Many always wonder why humans drink poison. Not just poison to another species or even most of the galaxy. Why do humans drink something that is poison to themselves? Something that destroys their body and brains, even in what they call a minor doses. Why do they often kill themselves with poison? Why do they, almost suicidally, leave this plane of existence and risk all they have? Well, do I have an answer for you? Yes, you who want to know about humans and their maddening minds and creations. To those of you who wish nothing more but to torment yourselves with knowledge that would best be left where it sits. Humans poison themselves with alcohol because to them, it's a substance that alters their minds with the most minor of consequences in the short term. Every human knows that everything in this universe will come to pass. They know that all their history and creations will fail and burn with the universe. They know the futility of life. But they also know that it isn't meaningless, even if everything gets destroyed. Some humans see everything as pointless, finding no reason to go on. Some find solace in tricking their brains and destroying them with drugs. Others find the same with religion, the belief of a great good entity that protects them from the heavens. But alcohol... Alcohol is for those who only want a small break from the horrible grayness of the universe. Those whom only wish to relax their minds for a moment do know the joys of doing so. To be a human is to know how it all ends. Many species have that information locked beyond the grasp of emotions. The humans enjoy no such luxury. 
for in the dead of night, the Reaper can remind them of their eventual fate. They can see and hear the death of everything that has ever been. For that reason, they seek refuge from alcohol, the oldest devil the humans know. It kills them, but it can also save them. Without anything to dampen their minds and thought, many of them could easily find it easier to no longer suffer the weight of existence. Even writing this, I feel nothing, for our species cannot comprehend the eventual death of everything that we hold, dear. The humans are the only ones who feel the weight, who see the death even while alive. The only ones who haven't ended their species. When you see a human laughing in a bar, intoxicated beyond recognition, don't feel sorry for them. Don't feel sadness or pity. You must laugh with them, dance with them, enjoy yourself with them, for it is the only time that they can enjoy such things without death gripping at their heels. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1106 Humans and Organized Chaos Every species has a niche. This was just a fact. The Axelon were amazing builders. The old Garath were genetics experts, and so on, and so forth. There was one thing that linked together all of the species, and that was the fact that they all had a government system based on meticulous planning, which would usually last a few decades and sometimes lifetimes. Then the galaxy met the humans. The human race was based off of ordered chaos and would do things on what seemed to be a woman. The galaxy was shocked, to say the least. They had found civilizations before which had chaotic systems of government, but they were usually long gone and had died out. But humans were alive and somehow thriving in the disorganized systems. What was even more surprising was that humans were heavily disorganized. They were divided into no less than 190 independencies that had radically different ways of governing their own languages, and their own cultures. That hadn't been seen before. The only time that there were multiple civilizations for one species was the time before fording, or the Stone Age, but humans seemed to thrive in this chaos. The galaxy looked down on them as barbarians and savages as the humans expanded into the stars, spreading their organized chaos and began to be called. And the Great Death came, a virus the likes of which the galaxy had never seen before. It was devastating and destructive and left entire planets barren and void of life. It was made by the Olgareth in an attempt to do the opposite of what they had done, create a virus to destroy viruses. The virus, we found out, was based off of one from Mars. That's when the galaxy found out humanity broke every rule they didn't have a niche. They didn't have mass planning. They were a species designed to do anything at all. And they were immune to the virus. Within three years, humanity and their organized chaos saved the galaxy. Within another twenty, they would do it again with the outbreak of war. During the war, the galaxy tried to do what they normally did. But the humans, they would plan out very complex operations in few weeks, rarely months. Most of the time, they worked and took the enemy completely off guard at how quickly humans had attacked, and with such primitive weapons. 
So humans were crazy. They didn't plan and they didn't wait. But it worked. Organized chaos. End of story. Story number two. Breaker, written by Rosie013. Omar was a broken man. He had lived his entire life as an unwanted outcast, to be shunned and feared by everyone who lived in these lands. His family had abandoned him at a young age. No one would accept his willing labor for coin or bread. He had no friends to share his burden. Even the other beggars and cripples that loitered just inside the city gates stayed away from him, unwilling to do anything other than pity and fear him. Pity the cripples. He could be no lower in life. All because of his damn curse. Omar was cursed with breaking. When he was just a toddler, his mother had taken him with her to see a witch about some ailment that was common at that time and in those close confines of the little hut, young Omar had accidentally brushed up against and knocked over some precious glass vials. The witch had become furious, demanding that they pay for the damage. Omar's mother couldn't afford to. The family had barely enough saved and borrowed for her ailment, that alone for the seven silver the witch demanded. Enraged, she cursed Omar that day with the breaking, Anything he touched would come undone just as little Omar had undone to her property. It started slowly at first. His clothes would wear down just a little bit faster. He seemed just a little bit more clumsy, breaking food bowls and anything else he was tasked to carry. Soon, the locals in the town noticed the boy's apparent mistreatment of things and regularly beat him for things that were not his fault, but the curses. Apparently unable to learn to treat things with respect, his reputation got out of hand and people started to shun him. His family kicked him out, unable to survive the wrath of their fellow villagers any longer. No one would employ him, even when he traveled ahead of his reputation. Wagons he worked with would collapse, spears he was assigned to use on guard duty rusted, and pickaxes would break in his grip. The list went on only getting worse as time went by. Eventually, after a few years of wandering, Omar found himself in the shadow of a great city, living off discarded and spoiled foods even the other beggars wouldn't touch. There he learned his worsening curse of breaking did have some upsides. The city guards would beat the beggars to pay the fee for being allowed to beg inside the city walls. Usually, every coin they had, they beat Omar too, but as he had not been able to cling to a single coin without it tarnishing beyond recognition for some time now. But the clubs splintered and fists fractured. They quickly learned not to lay a finger on Omar. Then, one day, everything changed. No, he didn't get the curse of breaking lifted. Not that it was possible. That old witch had died long before Omar could seek her out. He decided to steal and experience a full belly for the first time in his miserable life. The city guards would probably kill him for such a severe transgression. But at this point, Omar Plain didn't care anymore. Everything was going fine and the loaf of bread was almost his when the merchant boomed out thief. Omar had ran for all his worth and eventually found himself trapped by the guards in a location he didn't recognize. 
In the brief scuffle that followed, Omar tried to pull one of the guards off of him when his hand slipped and backhanded the wall, collapsing it. The 20-foot wall, 7-foot thick, city perimeter wall. When the dust had settled, everyone was silent, just staring at the impossible feat. Eventually, the guard captain told Omar to come with him and not to resist any further. Equally stunned as anyone else, he did as he was told, the nervous guards following along behind him at a spear length. Once the local lord had heard the story firsthand from the captain and Omar himself, did something that Omar hadn't experienced in a long while. The canny lord offered him employment, along with any charges leveled against him dropped. A man who could batter down walls with his bare hands was useful beyond words, and would be an undeniable asset to his city-state's military strength. Over time, the curse continued to get worse, and Omar continued to get better. He fought in a few wars and was one man battering ram and quickly gained renown and respect wherever he went. He couldn't handle his own payment, but that was what servants were for. He remained a humble man despite his newfound success. Full seats would not carry him, and the only bed that he could know was the floor. He walked as naked as the day he was born, for clothing could no longer hold itself together at his touch. As he began to grow old, Omar didn't need shield-bearers in battle, for his curse had grown so great that the arrows would split or shatter on impact with his bare skin. The very core of what they were unraveled as the lightest contact with the incredible strength of the curse. Omar was not a broken man he once was, but he retained the name that his lord had jokingly bestowed upon him in his very first battle. Omar the Breaker. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1107. Story number one. A brief look. At that time, a human declared war on some nullwits, written by Quasar Einfest. The Democratic Republic of Benix was waging war against the unified CFAR electorate. The TGC had no stake in such conflict, other than being slightly amused at the name of the first. Taylor Hughes was pretty much the most non-threatening person to exist. A tiny, shy brunette with a bit of social anxiety. She was unexceptional. At the time, she was on vacation with her husband, Terbrook Hoos, on the planet of Lori 4 in the Electorate's territory, a newly colonized planet of only a little bit over a billion people, and was of no military worth whatsoever. Through a chain of miscommunication and incompetent leadership, Lori 4 was mixed up with weapons manufacturing Ecumenopolis. The fleet was dispatched to bombard the planet. To the people scanning the fleet, it was pretty obvious that the planet was not in fact manufacturing complex. But to question orders was to invoke the wrath of the Inquisitors. So screw that. The planet had some standardized defenses, but they were only prepared to fight off a bit of piracy, not an actual fleet of warships from the Republic. The planet's defenses were quickly overwhelmed and nuclear weapons blanketed the surface. Taylor received third-degree burns, internal bleeding, and a nasty blow to the head. To Brock, wasn't human. It was a bit less durable. When Taylor came to a few months later, her nanites had many gathering resources from the surroundings. Her loving husband, her husband, then made her laugh and smile, was dead. 
the Republic fleet left, their mission accomplished. Taylor's immediate response was a bit of hysterical laughter. Her second response was carrying her husband's corpse back to their ship. The ship wasn't directly targeted by orbital bombardment, so it was fine. Its surroundings were less so. She had turned off its protective defenses to prevent massive collateral damage with someone to toss a rock at it. She desperately wished that she hadn't. By giving a damn about collateral damage, she had prevented the ship from automatically shooting down the nukes. By giving a damn about collateral damage, she had inadvertently killed her husband. What she did next was maybe a bit of an overreaction. But suffice to say, she was a tad bit irked at the Republic. She had a ship fabricator start making mining drones. There was plenty of scrap around after all. The mining drones brought back materials and the fabricators started making more fabricators. A short while later, and she was stripped mining the planet. Once the materials available on the surface were collected, she started setting up deeper drilling operations and took a ship to orbit. The fabricator on a ship started making more fabricators, only this time with railgun-delivered resources. About six and a half hours after her husband was killed, she was mining away at every planet and moon in the system. The drones battery-powered. The recharging hub spread throughout the system, each with a bit of antimatter fuel from her ship. She attached cargo sections to her ship and collected excess processed materials from each planetary manufacturing hub. Nine hours after the attack, she finally had enough materials to start creating a Dyson Swarm. Though, just the start of course. Even just a portion of a portion of one provides quite a lot of energy. Black luster compared to a proper regroup, but it'll do... Fabricators formed an expanding perimeter as the swarm grew. Twelve hours, and she had enough power and materials to start making stellar lifters, harvesting vast amounts of plasmic hydrogen and helium with, relatively, sparse bits of other elements mixed in. Fifteen hours post-attack, and she was able to start creating more exotic materials. Eighteen and FTL cargo ships flooded the star system. Twenty-one and she had constructed a basic gateway and synced it to the rest of the network. Her time a fair bit shorter than had she made the trip back to human space the normal way. Twenty-four hours and the drones were being sent outwards from the border of humanity's territory, not facing the Union. Not von Neumann probes, though. Those were rather outdated, after all. Von Neumann probes require each probe to have manufacturing capabilities and hefty computer systems. All a gateway drone needs is a big engine and a big warp drive. Once at the destination, the drone detaches from the folded-up gateway it was hauling, and the gateway unfolds into a functioning connection to every other gateway in the network. The drone goes through to collect another gateway, and more drones head through at every other star that doesn't already have a drone en route. Once that's completed, a bigger folded-up gateway is sent through the first. Then a bigger one is sent through that one. A few iterations of this, and the star system is capable of handling regular traffic, starting with the beginning of construction of a Dyson Ring Group. 36 hours after the Republic doomed itself, she started sending automated warships back through the portal to Electorate space. The Electorate was for the most part just grateful for the support against the aggressors. The first battle against the Republic was ended quickly. 
Boarding pods full of robotic soldiers and toxic gas meant the ship was still in decent condition. Easier to reclaim materials from a ship disabled by chemical warfare than antimatter ammunition. Taylor wasn't a chemist, but bored people on the internet quickly provided a tailor-made chemical formula targeting a couple of species of the Republic. The TGC looked into things, of course, but the chemical weapons in question were designed to kill quickly, not cause unnecessary suffering. So what was fine? They hadn't received a formal request for aid, so what someone did outside their territory wasn't their problem. Skipgates shoved things into warp, which can be used to give ships a head start. On the other hand, when something without a warp drive is launched via electromagnetics or gravity manipulation, then skipgate the object will decrease in warp factor until it hits one, at which point the object is then in the same place of existence as everything else not in warp. The entire time it's in warp, the velocity relative to warp 1 is multiplied by a warp factor. Aped carefully, a pizza can be delivered right in front of you, surrounding walls completely ignored. Aped carefully, a capsule made of regular matter containing antimatter via electromagnetics can be dumped right into the middle of anything which doesn't have anti-warp defenses. When Taylor started deleting planets from the Republic's territory, the TGC looked into things again, but she was acting on behalf of herself, not a corporation, so it wasn't the TGC's problem. Taylor wasn't a biologist, but bored people on the internet quickly provided the tailor-made virus targeting the couple of species of the Republic. Bioweapons are by their nature hard to control once used. So the TGC looked into things, but she had distributed a counterplay to the polities around the Republic. So those of those species outside the Republic wouldn't be affected. All in all, it took 39 hours for the situation to go from Taylor having only a ship to the Republic being completely outmatched. It took 45 hours for the Republic to collapse into civil war. It took 54 hours for the Republic to no longer exist. Everyone not completely brain dead learned two lessons. One, make sure there aren't any humans where you're aiming. Two, if a single civilian can do that, do not mess with the human military. Of course, not everyone actually got that message, but idiots will be idiots. End of story. Story number two. The Human Champion, written by Wyvern590. The chanting of my people drowned out the pitiful squawkings of the human audience as the radiant heat of the pits illuminated our bloodlust-fueled manic frenzy. Long have we waited for this day. After a thousand years, a new race with new champions would face glorious death in the arena. Our victory is assured, as our divine right to rule is undeniable. Our ascension to the heavens marked at the beginning of a 10,000-year crusade, culminating with our dominion over the galaxy. However, many grew bored of the slaughter, for no enemy posed a true challenge for our warriors, and many died feeling as though they had not achieved the same glory as their ancestors. And so we cast aside our machines of war, our ships, our tanks, and our cannons. They now adorn not the fields of distant planets, but the room of this very stadium. 
a colossal monument to the Crusades and our inexorable claim to the universe. I ascended the gilded steps to the Emperor's throne, my throne, and raised my talents. Silence followed, for who would dare challenge the Emperor's patience? Even the humans, ignorant of imperial customs, knew better. Lowering my talent, I addressed the feverish crowd. My people, sons and daughters of Karana, today is the greatest of days, for we have discovered new friends. But before they can be our friends, they must be our enemies. The crowd cheered and allowed them a moment of wild cheer before silencing them again. I know you are eager for blood, and so am I. Release the champions, I shouted. As the echo of my majestic voice faded, the cheers grew, drowning out the grinding of metal as the greats were lifted out of the ancient soil below. Our champions, impatient and bloodthirsty, burst through the gates, shattering rivets and sending massive metal shards careening into the air. Thousands of chimeric abominations bred for this very battle, flooded the arena. Some maintained their original Quran appearance to a degree. Others twisted mockery of flesh and metal, but all deadly and clamoring for the blood of the human champion. The opposing grate slammed open, when, suddenly, the humans began chanting with a fervor that overwhelmed the frenzied clamor of my own people. Rup and tear! They shouted as a lone warrior emerged from the shadows. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.